This episode of the Behind the Shield podcast is brought to you by 5.11 Tactical, a company that I've used for well over a decade, and they are offering you a 15% discount on every order. And I will tell you that code in just a moment, but I want to do another product highlight. And I can testify, as with the other ones, through personal experience. I wore a 5.11 uniform way back when I worked for Anaheim Fire in California, so we're talking 13 years ago, and I know for a fact that some of my brothers and sisters I work with still wear some of the clothes that they were given when I was hired there, so some of the job shirts, jackets, and this really kind of resonated with me because I realized so many of the departments I've worked at, there are men and women with lockers crammed with old, worn, frayed uniform. And that really represents wasted budget. So to have uniforms with durability means that you don't have to purchase them as often. Now you can apply that budget elsewhere. Another area they've really focused on is redesigning their women's first responder uniforms. I am a skinny six foot tall man and some of these uniforms I'm issued literally hang off me like a trash bag. And I can imagine it's even worse being a female first responder. So they have really taken that into account and redesigned the cuts so they're far more flattering to the female firefighter, first responder, medic, etc. On top of that, several departments I work for have gone from job shirts to polo shirts. 5.11 has those. And then to underline a product I've already talked about, they have the footwear. I wore the CST slip-on boot for a long time from 5.11. And now the Norris sneaker that you've heard me talk about is a lightweight duty boot that puts far less pressure on the ankles and knees, the back, etc. So as I mentioned before, they are offering you guys a continuous 15% discount. And all you have to do is use the code SHIELD at checkout at 511tactical.com. So once again, code SHIELD at 511tactical.com. This episode is sponsored by LifeAid. Now, LifeAid has several products, one of which I want to highlight because it's so pertinent to you, the sleep-deprived audience. Their product, FocusAid, is a healthy alternative to the energy drinks that I see so many of us relying on because we are exhausted. There's no other way of putting it. These energy drinks that I've seen are putting our men and women into hospitals with arrhythmias, GI distress, adding to anxiety, certainly affecting mental health. So what Focus Aid has done is they've removed all the terrible ingredients and used natural, healthy ingredients, natural sweeteners, and replaced the high levels of caffeine with a nootropic. And what a nootropic is, is a supplement for your brain. As a first responder, I can attest that this then allows you to be alert on a call, but when it is time to rest, to go to bed, whether it's the end of the shift, whether it's after a call, you're actually able to not only sleep, but get a better quality of sleep as well. So an incredible product I urge you guys to try and LifeAid has reached out to you, the audience, to offer you a discount of 15% if you use the discount code SHIELD at lifeaidbevco.com. So that's L-I-F-E-A-I-D-B-E-V-C-O.com. Use the code SHIELD, which is S-H-I-E-L-D. And please try this. It's going to end up being less expensive than the drinks that you're using and I'm telling you right now, it's an incredible product. And please reach out and let me know what you think. Welcome to episode 264 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing. And this week, I am so excited to bring to you Chief Frank Viscuso. 
Now, I just had the honor of listening to Frank talk at the Apopka Fire Conference and was amazed by the power of his presentation, but also the connection. That particular conference is in memory of engineer Armando Bojas, and they used the money from that to send a man or woman through fire school full scholarship in his honor. So Frank's presentation not only was a regular leadership one, but he also tied it in with the family that were present. So a great, great speaker. In this interview, we discuss a host of topics from micromanaging, leadership skills, all the way through to the insane differences between shift schedules across the country. Before we get to the interview, please take a moment and go to whichever app you listen to this on, leave a rating, leave feedback, and obviously subscribe to the show, and then take your social media and share these episodes. Once again, Frank's episode is incredible, and this could be of benefit not only people across the U.S., but the UK, the rest of Europe, everywhere else on the globe. So share, share, share. You guys are a part of this project and I rely on you to share these incredible people's story. So with that being said, I bring to you Chief Frank Viscuso. Enjoy. Frank, I want to start by saying welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you, James, for inviting me on. Right. Well, very first question I always start with is where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Well, right now, at this particular moment in my office in in uh, Tom's River, New Jersey. Uh, but uh, as you know, I do quite a bit of, of traveling and uh, and speaking and spreading a message just to try to help uh, people become more effective leaders and and build more effective teams. So uh, the question of where am I today is a funny one because oftentimes, uh, you know, I'll be in an airport wondering exactly where I am today. But for this day, I actually know. So, <laughs> you, you recognize the surroundings. Yes. <laughs> okay. So then let's start at the very beginning. Where were you actually born and what was your family unit like? Well, you know, I was I was born in northern New Jersey. Uh, I live uh, in, you know, a little bit more of southern New Jersey right now, but born in Kearney. And Kearney is just outside of, really, it's just outside of Manhattan. It's on the New Jersey side, of course. It's Kearney, New Jersey, sandwiched between Jersey City and Newark, New Jersey. Um, it's on a peninsula. We have 24 bridges coming in and out of Kearney, train bridges and roadways and the Pulaski Skyway and the New Jersey Turnpike. So it's a pretty fast moving area. And, you know, I'm lucky, you know, where I was born and raised. I mean, Kearney had a nickname back then. It's still a nickname. Uh, if you were looking to the uh, uh, Google it or looking to the, 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 the books, it's Kearney's known as, as Soccer Town USA um, for many, many years. Uh, Carney has produced uh, tremendous soccer players, uh, you know, great teams, uh, state champion teams and and players that have played in the World Cups and Major League Soccer. Uh, I was not one of them. I had I was very slow. But I'll tell you what, Carney is a is a very and I should say was, um, but it was a very close knit community. Everybody knew everybody in Carney. And if uh, let's just say, for example, if I were to step out of line somewhere uh, in this 11 square mile community, somebody would say, hey, aren't you Zibby's son? 
you know, so you, you tended to not step out of line because uh, not only did everybody know everybody, but, but um, you know, I, my father was very well respected in the community and uh, often taught us, James, that uh, after we became firefighters, my brother and I, my father was also a firefighter, often taught us that, hey, you have two names on your gear. You have the name on the back that represents uh, your family. You have the name on the front of your helmet that represents your department. You need to make them both proud. And that's something that I've tried to do my entire career uh, for both fire service and family, but very close knit family, Italian family. And, uh, and I can tell you, you want to talk about, about unit and, uh, and people uh, looking out for each other. That's my family. If one, if one of us is having a challenge, the rest of the family circles, the wagons around them. And it's a beautiful thing. Well, that's great to hear. And I've, I've talked to other guests about this as well, that were raised in a smaller town. And I was, I grew up on a farm on the edge of a, a town called Corsham in England. Um, and way, way later, like when I started talking to Sebastian Junger, some of those people realizing that that's kind of an area that we've got away from, not just in, you know, in small towns, but I think you can, you can capture that in big cities as well, but you have to make an effort is that tribal community feel. Um, what's been your observation coming from that to not only, you know, the say New York, for example, but all the other places that you traveled as well? Well, first of all, I think like when I was younger and I talk about this in my seminars, uh, you know, relationships were formed on the front porch. You know, it was, uh, our doors were unlocked. People were always welcome and we weren't as quick to judge or become angry with somebody whose opinions were different than ours. Now, what I see is uh, relationships are no longer formed on front porches. People don't even keep their doors unlocked anymore. People fence in their backyards. They only invite who they want there. They only watch the news channels they want to watch. And when somebody rings their doorbell, they check their phone to see who just walked on the porch by viewing it on their ring or other device. And if it's not somebody that they want to have a conversation with, they just don't even respond. So I see that, that uh, you know, I'm sure you talked about this with Sebastian. I've read his books. I mean, incredible insight. But I, I think that where we've where we're heading is something that concerns me because um, there's just a lot of anger out there. There's a lot of people who are looking for something to be upset about instead of looking for something to celebrate. And I, and that concerns me a lot. Yeah. One one. Uh phrase that I kind of really resonates with me is that one um, to label me is to negate me and I think that's what we're doing more so than ever now and I saw it even growing up not just to, to pick on us today but even as a, a young man in England during the 80s and 90s that was when football fans were stabbing each other over 11 dudes wearing short shorts you know so it, it was I mean it's insanity but the moment that you focus on the differences between people rather than the commonalities that's when we have issues. And I think whatever your political persuasion or whatever, I think we're, we and, and the UK and other countries around the world are in need of some people who, you know, we view as leaders to start bringing that sense of community and that kindness and compassion rather than the crush the enemy, you know, we must make the most money mentality that seems to be what sways political parties at the moment. Yeah, well, you know, and the thing is, is that what we're talking about, conflict exists in the world. And I, I like to talk to people about 
what conflict is. You know what conflict is, is people are passionate about their point of view. That's fine. I want to be around people who are passionate about their point of view. But but true conflict only exists when we don't have respect for the opposing point of view, because the way people typically deal with conflict, they either ignore it, which never works. They fight it out or they compromise. Now, obviously, compromise is the right way to deal with conflict. And, and to me, compromise means this. If you and I, James, if we disagreed on something, can we find a way where we can both be happy with the outcome? And I found in most situations, yes, we can. But today, people don't want to find a way where we can both be happy with the outcome. I'm right, you're wrong, that's it. You know, when there's a political election on social media, people rarely, rarely post an article that is a positive article about the candidate that they're supporting. Instead, what they post is negative stuff about the opposing candidates and then tell you and me why we're idiots if we were supporting that person. <laughs> well, and, and so do the, the candidates themselves. Like We have no way of knowing about them because they're too busy throwing shit at the other parties. That's the problem. That's the problem right there is the example we're getting. I mean, I have young boys and I remember a couple years ago, I'm watching a vice presidential debate with my son who I think was five. And he says, daddy, why are they so angry with each other? And I, I remember after a few minutes, we turned on a cartoon instead. And I thought, uh, this, this is the problem is we don't have anyone setting the right example. And if they are, they just they, they largely get ignored. And uh, and it's a shame. But unfortunately, this is the society we live in. And I think we need to learn uh, to adapt. I really value people who, well, let's just take this, take, I'll put it to you this way. Where I come from in northern New Jersey, to, to talk a little bit about Carney, if somebody had a problem with you growing up, they, they told you they had a problem with you. They would tell you what the problem is. And then after discussing it, however way we discussed it, uh, 10 minutes later, they go out and they get a beer together and it's over. And I don't see that anymore. I see it's, you know, we're going to hold the grudges. We're going to try to, it's, if you can't beat somebody uh, on a debate, what they try to do is smear their credibility. And what I see today is they don't even try to win a debate anymore. They just go for the smear of the credibility. And, and it's a challenge. It's a challenge for me because I don't like, I don't like trying to damage anybody else's character, and I certainly don't like when people try to do it to me, but I, I see that people, that's the avenue that people initially go for instead of trying to articulate their point of view. Yeah, yeah, and I agree, and I, I raised my son you know, to, to be kind and compassionate. That's the core of my parenting philosophy, and it's it's sad when you you see you know whoever again i'm not picking on left right whatever but you have people that are on the tv a lot whether on the news whether you know it's a political campaign and you have to say yeah everything i teach you don't be like those people <laughs> you know don't be right. like that basketball star who's beating his chest because he just put a ball into a freaking hole be like that football player who's out there using some of his money to help street kids you know that that's who you need to model himself but just because someone is sitting in a certain building or wearing a certain jersey doesn't make them a good person no no and and it also is a challenge that these are the people getting the reality shows and the endorsements and reaching you know high levels and political offices and and we're saying hey don't be like that but yet they're reaching a pinnacle of success in their industry at the same time and uh and I guess this is uh, this is the thing that I hope that we, as the next generation, work on trying to correct. 
Yeah. Well, I can say I've, I've spoken about this on the podcast before. I live in Ocala and this one community that I live in is about four like subdivisions around this giant um, lake and they've got communal football fields, like you know, soccer fields, um, volleyball, tennis, all this stuff. The the um, HOA really isn't that much considering how much it is, but the sense of community is amazing. And this is an environment where the kids come home and the lights go on, just like everyone nostalgically talks about the good old days. So you can absolutely have that. I think it's that build it, they will come. We just have to, as people, understand that whatever you know those sounding boards are, are spewing, for lack of a better word, that if you just go out your front door and decide that you're going to be a member of a community and, and start, you know, introducing yourself to your neighbors and maybe helping the elderly ones or, you know, forming a group, whatever it is, joining a local gym or a local sports team that you can actually foster that community that was alive and well, you know, World War II era. It's only recently that we started to lose it. Right. Right. What a great generation that was too, the World War II era. You know, I, I don't know if I told you this, but I had, a, I had co-authored a book called The Mentor uh, with a, a very good friend of mine who lives in Ocala, Florida, Ryan Chamberlain. And uh, and so I have a sense of what you're talking about when you talk about what the community is like that, because they're they're like that. They remind me of what it was uh, growing up here when I was, you know, my my younger years, when I was 10, 12, 15 years old here in New Jersey. It seems like they have that out there now. So uh, so I do understand what you're talking about. And I, and I like it. I'm glad that it still exists. And I hope we can get more of it. Yeah, no, I, I really think we do. I think that the um, the internet, as much cancer as it's putting out there, people are realizing that you can actually slice off all that negativity, and and there are some amazing avenues of positivity out there. I mean, you know, you and I sat in the Apopka Fire Conference, and you know what an amazingly powerful few hours that was, you know, to raise money for uh, Armando Borjas, you know, and he, who passed away. But in his in his memory, they're creating scholarships to send new firefighters to school. So these pockets of goodness exist among most people. But sadly, the squeaky wheels allow us to have this distorted view of what our communities look like. And that's wrong. The community is still the good old days. We just need to take it back. Yes. You know what? We need to look out for each other. When I spoke at that conference, uh, prior to going up there, they were telling me about the family uh, that we were, uh, you know, there to honor because they lost their father. And, they, you know, I know that he had his two children in a room. And I remember thinking, all right, this is a big responsibility for me because at this point, I don't just want to speak to the firefighters in the room and the politicians that were in the room. I want to make sure that that I honor him by sharing uh, some messages with his children that I would hope somebody would share with my children if something happened to me and I were not around. And that's just, that's because to, to me, when I think of the fire service, that's the first word that comes to my community. We are a community. We are a community with issues, but we also still are a community and we have to look after each other. I feel our military has that. I feel that law enforcement has that. I feel that, that there's uh, you know, pockets of people. But for me, the thing that I love about about the fire service is many people that are with it, that are in this industry, career and volunteer, understand the sense of community and understand it's not just about those of us that wear the uniform. Our community is about serving our community. And I love that about this. It's there's something unique and different. Some people don't get it. Some people have lost it. Some people forget it. But the majority of the people within this industry understand why we exist 
And, and it's one of the things that I've always found empowering about this. It's, it's something bigger than just me, something bigger than just you and something bigger than just our team. We're here to spend the worst moments of people's lives with them. And we're here to make it better. We're problem solvers. And that's the part of it that I hope people always remember. We exist within this industry to solve problems. The world is full of problem finders. You see them everywhere. But the people that sit at the kitchen table at any fire station in America exist to solve problems. And we can't go out there and effectively solve the problems of our community if we can't even solve the problems within our own four walls. And that's the one message that I hope people take away from uh, part, at least part of the message uh, from this conversation we're going to have right now is this is why we're here to solve our issues, to solve the problems. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, before we go down that path, let's go back to to your earlier life. So your dad was a firefighter. What was your journey into the fire service yourself? Uh, you know what? It was it was um, it was an interesting one because I was out in Charleston, West Virginia. Uh, I was I had a, a rowing scholarship, if you're familiar with crew, the sport. And um, I was studying art. You know, I guess if, if I could say what I wanted to become back then when I was still in college, I probably wanted to become Paul Combs. You know, I wanted to be an illustrator. I want, but, uh, you know, it's not that I didn't have the talent to do it, but at that point, maybe I just didn't have the discipline because I would see, I would see what I was not good at. And I would say, well, you know what? I don't know if I can get there. See, something I didn't understand when I was younger, James, was that you can work hard enough to get good at anything. I would start to believe that little voice inside of my head that would tell me, you know what, Frank, you're really not that good. And I would hear other people's negative opinions of me instead of believing in my own potential, I would start to believe that. So as I'm in school thinking, you know what, I'd like to be uh, an, an artist, an illustrator, I'd like to be involved in art somehow. Um, I also did not know how to get into that. Uh, I started doing a little bit of work with film production. Uh, that creative side of me was uh, was kind of really trying to find uh, a way to be released. But at the same time, uh, I come home for one of the, I think it might have been winter break, and, and my father asked me if I'd be interested in taking a test to be a firefighter. My brother was taking a test. And I said, you know what, Dad, I really don't think I want to be a fireman. And my brother uh, made a reference to, well, you know what? He, he couldn't beat me in the exam either, anyway. And he was talking about the physical portion of the exam because he had been training for it. And I thought, wait a minute, I'm a college athlete. And this, my brother just challenged me. I'm willing to take this obstacle course exam he's talking about. So I signed up to take the test more of a challenge than anything else. And the long and short of the story is it's kind of a funny story when I tell the whole thing, but I'll just sum it up for you. My brother beat me on the test, but I trained to try to beat him and I scored high enough to be offered the job. So although I was out in West Virginia, I actually took a two year degree. I, I left school out in Charleston. I came and and completed my education here in New Jersey, uh, all the while working as a firefighter, thinking while I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my life and how to get into it, uh, let me try this job out. And it's easy to fall in love with the profession once you're there. And I did. And, you know, after 27 years in the service, I can tell you, uh, I'm very, very grateful that my father urged me to take the test and I had the opportunity to 
to serve. And I eventually did find that creative outlet with the books uh, down the line. So it was something that, uh, you know, came full circle. I'm very, very grateful. Now, what was it? Because obviously you've been exposed to the fire service being in a fire family as a young man. What was it that clicked once you actually got on the job yourself? Uh, you know what? It, you know, being an athlete, um, this, I competed in just about every sport. I competed in soccer. I competed in football, uh, wrestling and rowing, uh, baseball, you name it. But wrestling and rowing were the two I took to. And, um, you know, it, wrestling is an interesting one because although it's a team sport, it never feels like a team sport because you're out there as an individual. And um, wrestling in New Jersey, uh, it's one of the top three states in the in the country as far as producing, um, you know, world class wrestlers. So uh, it's very, very competitive. And you almost feel like if you've ever seen that movie beyond thunderdome two men enter one man leaves when you go into this cage and they fight it out and one's going to leave and the other one's not sometimes you feel like that because parents can be incredibly intense so here it is you're on this mat you're on alone you got this light that's kind of uh spotlighted on you and you're competing uh in a way that it that it's that's very intense and with that comes adrenaline and same thing with rowing you know, uh, there's there's this shot of adrenaline you get when you compete in sports that uh, I guess a lot of professions don't offer. And when I had my first fire, I had a sense of that, that teamwork, that adrenaline. Uh, and you think, uh, I don't think even it was so much during the fire, it was after the fire that I thought that was pretty intense, you know. And, and then, of course, you have the conversations with everybody about what occurred there and you start building off that. And you start to realize that, you know, that this is not only a very serious job, but it's a, a job that that if you do it right, there's great rewards. Because what are we doing? We're, we're here to, to, to rescue people. We're here to save lives, here to save property, here to serve our community. And so there's so much that you get that fulfill, at least that I felt that fulfilled me. Uh, but I, but the adrenaline thing was the thing that kind of captured me early on because uh, it just brought me back to competing in youth sports uh, and as a team, you know, it has that sense. And I think a lot of people want that. And, you know, I, I think that after you leave, after you uh, compete in sports as as a, uh, you know, a young adult or somebody at the high school or college level, when it's over, most people don't get that again in their life. But we do. People in, in our industry we do. If you actually look at it for what it is, uh, you're competing at the highest level. Some people, I heard somebody refer to it as industrial athletes. I get it. I understand where they're going with that. Um, but that's part of it, James. And it's part of knowing that you you are there for a purpose. I mentioned this earlier. That's bigger than yourself. And there's something wonderful about that when you actually um receive feedback from somebody that is eternally grateful that you not only responded to their t them in their time of need, but you went above and beyond in their eyes of what another individual they ever thought would do for them um, by actually performing at the level you did or actually just putting forth the effort that you did. And I know you know what I'm talking about when I say that, but um, those all, all that stuff encompassed what I felt was uh, what they call the greatest job on earth. 
And once you understand that, it's easy to fall into it and say, you know what, I'm all in. Yeah, you know, I can completely relate because I, I fought Taekwondo. That was my martial art when I was younger and, and did individual ones and then did team ones. But like you said, when you're fighting team, you're still going one at a time and you have an opponent to to beat. So it's interesting because they always point at team sports. Oh, if you want to be, you know, a good leader, you need to play football or, you know, soccer or whatever it is. Um, but I think there's a huge amount of value in those independent sports because, in a team, it's possible to kind of sandbag a bit and, and you're in a strong team, the rest of them will carry you through. When it's an individual, it's you and them. And there is no excuses. There's no blaming the defense or the goalkeeper or, you know, whoever you want to point your finger to. You lost either because you got destroyed or what happened a lot of times is you lost on points. Oh, that was a bad decision of the referee. No, if you were going to really own it, you're like, well, next time I'm going to take it out of the hands of the referee and knock the person out or just get to a point where there's, you know, no one can, can, um, you know, judge against you. But yeah, so those two combined, I think is, is to me the magic combination to have a taste of that independent type sport and that taste of team sport together. And that really does then foster that ownership of your role within that fire service team. Right. You have to perform. If you don't perform, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm a huge fan still to this day of, of collegiate wrestling. I follow it. I'm friends with uh, some of the coaches, some of the parents of the kids that are competing at a high level. We, we have these discussions all the time. You know, listen, how many times does a team lose by by two points in wrestling when if somebody made a, a different decision when it was when it was their one on one match, they could have potentially got those extra points and that led to the team victory even though they won their match they won by three when if they uh put more effort into it they could have won by five you know those types of things so i get it you know and i agree with you 100 percent. i love i love team sports but i truly love individual sports also because everyone needs to know what they're capable of doing and that's where you find out absolutely all right well then once you've made a decision um you know you you became uh, a very passionate firefighter yourself. You've obviously written books on leadership. So in your early years, you know, were, were there some people that were great mentors to you that helped set that bar high from the beginning? Yeah, hundred percent. I think I'm like anybody um, where I've worked for really, really great, strong leaders uh, that were far better at being a deputy chief than, than I had uh, been able to achieve in my opinion uh, they were great examples uh something to give me something to strive for but then i also worked for for people who i guess um showed you exactly how not to lead you know because they led through intimidation instead of trying to inspire people to be great but um i, I valued it all because i feel that you know we can learn just as much from a bad leader as we can from a good leader and i tried to look for the lesson in everything and quite honestly, some of the decisions I made when I was leading, um, I think were good ones and some of them were probably not good ones, but that's part of, of learning and growing and, and improving. But the difference I think between maybe me and some of the other people out there that, that, you know, maybe aren't good leaders is I was aware when I made mistakes and I looked to make corrections. Some people are not aware. You know, some people and I don't I'm just not just talking about the fire service industry. I'm talking about leadership in general. Some people aren't even aware that their actions are tearing their team apart on a regular basis. And yet they want to 
blame everybody else around them when they don't realize that they could just take some simple steps to improve morale or to make better decisions to try to get a better performance out of people. And, uh, and they don't, they don't. So, uh, teams fail all the times. And the hardest part is when a team fails and nobody can identify the reason why the team failed. If you could identify it, you could fix it. If you can't fix it, or I'm sorry, if you can't identify it, you can't fix something you refuse to acknowledge exists in the first place. So I think part of my journey uh, in the whole leadership and team development um, portion uh, of my life with the books and with the seminars has been uh, a journey of self-awareness, not just for me, but trying to encourage other people to be self-aware. What are you doing really good you need to keep doing? What are you doing incorrectly and getting a bad result that you need to stop doing? And what aren't you doing at all that you need to start to? And by the way, as we're speaking, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, this as great as technology is, that we can connect like this and connect with however many people we're going on this podcast, two group texts have formed in the last... Uh, 15 minutes that I happen to be a part of. And if there's anything I would change about technology, it would figure out a way how to opt out of a group text message. So if my phone does vibrate, I apologize. Yeah, no problem at all. I trust me that if that was some of the guys I used to work with, it would be an, I would have to reschedule because I know my phone would just be vibrating until it was dead. So <laughs> I totally understand what you're saying. The cool part of it is one of them is, I mean, my niece just got, uh, she just uh, got her license. And so my family is all congratulating her on that. But the other one is a group text of guys that I went to college with. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, a group text that just formed about a half hour ago. And we're all so excited to be reconnected that everybody's just, um, um, you know, asking how everybody else is doing. So, I mean, it, that's that's the one thing that I do love about technology is, uh, you know, we mentioned earlier, we talked a little bit about the Internet. It could be a wonderful, wonderful thing. That being said, you know, starting an argument on Facebook is not a, a challenging thing, James. You know how you start an argument on Facebook? It's two simple steps. One, post your opinion. And two, wait. Because everybody, everybody's looking, like I mentioned, everybody's looking to be angry about something. And uh, and that's not what I'm looking for. I try to avoid that stuff. I, I want uh, at least... You know, at this point in my life, I want to be around positive, encouraging people. I don't mind talking about problems at all as long as we're talking about solutions. And that's what we need to get back to. How can we solve the problem? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you, you talked about the, um, you know, the leadership side and identifying problems. My little boy plays football here, soccer, um, in the league. This right out of the subdivision again. Great little league, low stress. They don't travel or anything. They just play each other. Um, and uh, they had a great, great coach. And he kind of moved up one click to help oversee the entire organization. So we got one of the other parents volunteer. Nothing against that gentleman at all. I don't know what his background is. He's volunteering his time. But just watching my son's team when there's that leadership change to someone who's not got that passion for the game, doesn't understand it. Same exact kids had won like two or three leagues in a row. And just by removing that one key player, the the, the coach, to a different kind of person, um, it, it's exactly what you're saying. I don't know if he even sees what they're doing wrong anymore but they've gone from playing well to at each other's throats all the time so from a fire you know station or department stance it's exactly the same thing toxic leadership as well as obviously every level but toxic leadership specifically 
can can permeate an entire department. Yes. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it could it could as one of my friends eloquently said, it could destroy the soul of an organization, and and uh, I've seen it happen. Um, you know, because I do a lot of traveling. You know, uh, I'm at a different department almost every week, and. And I do workshops. I'll do like three-day workshops with the officers of departments. And sometimes I'll just go in and do a seminar with members of, of 20 or 30 different departments. And with that uh, came great insight for me because I, it's not so much when I'm up there speaking. It's the conversations I have with them in between the breaks or at dinner uh, later on that night when, you know, we talk, listen, basically what I do is I, I'm consistently having these types of conversations that you and I are having right now, but it's just one-on-one over a cup of coffee or, or over dinner. And, and I'm seeing what's right with the fire service and what's wrong with the fire service everywhere I go. And what's right is we all know why we're there, but what's wrong is, is every now and then uh, somebody reaches a position where they, um, are making decisions based off fear or greed or ego and not based off what's best for the community and the team. And when that happens, uh, it creates a lot of, of, of controversy and unnecessary drama. And with drama comes poor performance. And with, with poor performance comes people saying, yeah, I'm done. I'm out of here. I give up. I, I can't wait to retire or I'm going somewhere else. And I see it happening all the time. The worst is when people say, you know what, I- I'm done. I- I- I'll do my job. I'll do the minimum and nothing more. And one of the things that I think is, is sad is, uh, and I'll tell you this, the worst sound you'll ever hear if you're leading an organization is silence coming from people that were once your most dedicated employees or coworkers. Because when they no longer want to perform because of maybe they're being micromanaged or maybe they're um, uh, being disciplined uh, as a punishment instead of as a way to correct. Um, you know, eventually people just kind of s- step back and say, I don't need this. I don't need this because there's people over here on the other side of the, of the room that are doing nothing and nobody ever tells them anything. And people who complain the most and do the least are often rewarded with less work and less responsibility. And the people who are out there working, trying to make their organizations better, are sometimes uh, dealing with being disciplined uh, for something they did that maybe they did incorrectly instead of uh, being rewarded for doing more than expected. You know, and I think this this doesn't happen everywhere. Don't get me wrong. But I see that there are places where this is happening. And when it does that's when a department needs to start getting back on track. And, uh, and that's the thing I love doing the most is helping them do just that. Yeah. Well, I've had an interesting view as well, not anywhere near as diverse as yours, but I started in Florida, um, in South Florida, then went over to California for a few years and then came back to the Orlando area. And, uh, without naming names in those groups, there was one organization where the bar was set incredibly high at the front door your probation was 365 days of oh shit i might get fired and then once you reach that bar and you'd by through attrition they'd lose about a quarter of the class every single rookie class they would they would let them go um so when you walk through the door you found yourself welcomed by very motivated firefighters engineers lieutenants chiefs because they'd all been through the crucible the mentoring never stopped 
like, yes, you're off the year. Now it's, you know, like the Navy SEALs, you're done with buds. Now let's teach you how to really be a fireman. Um, and then the polar opposite where there was zero bar at the door. You didn't even do any fire training in orientation. Um, and the most toxic, complacent department I've ever worked in. And it is disgusting, you know, the, the lack of ownership there and some great people that had been hired within that structure who was swimming upstream and could never really make a difference. And, and ultimately that's why I retired because of that same thing. Um, but so I've seen those exact same things and the, the common denominator to me, and I want to ask you without loading the question, but what I saw was the first step to create in a great fire department is to put those bloody standards where they should be and not be afraid to let people go and, and challenge your men and women to, to rise a, you know, a, a bar that's in a normal place, not, not completely out of reach, but where there's an understanding that lives really do, you know, are in the balance. And if you maintain that and if people can't reach it, you let them go. No hard feelings, but this is, this is the kind of pride we have in our organization. That then is the domino effect is great people in all the ranks from there on. The polar opposite that I saw is if you have no bar, anyone can walk in. You've got no way of filtering out the turds, for lack of a better word. And one day they're wearing bugles and the entire organization is suffering. Yes. Uh, I think you hit uh, many nails on the head with that one. So let, let's talk about this for a minute because you mentioned uh, Navy SEAL Special Forces. I had the opportunity to hear a SEAL speak one time where he was actually comparing um special forces to the fire service. And he said some real interesting things. He says, there's a lot of commonality between the two. He said, for example, we both fight an enemy that could strike any time during the day or night. We both fight an enemy that could hit us with an unknown size and intensity. We both fight an enemy that maneuvers rapidly, causing us to have to rely on teamwork to defeat it. And when he started talking about that, he says, but let me talk about the differences. And he says, number one is the selection process. And so what you talked about with your first organization, it sounds like they had a more strict selection process. So you went through phase one, congratulations. Now you move to phase two. The standard is set high. The bar is set high. That's the way it should be. I like that. Why? Because like you said, lives are in a balance here. Uh, another thing you talked about was the equipment they have. Well, we have all the proper equipment to do the job too. So if we have the, uh, a good selection process, if we have the proper equipment to do the job, that leads one more thing. And number three, he said the training, how they prepare. And to some training up between how special forces train and how I see most fire departments train, uh, I'll, I would ask anybody, and I know not everybody that listens to this podcast is in the fire service. Some are police officers, some are civilians, some are military. Uh, but anyone can relate to what I'm about to say. But in a fire service, imagine a typical training evolution for a search and rescue drill. Uh, what we typically do, we go into a station and or I'm sorry, a room in our station, move some furniture around, uh, darken out the mask with either wax paper or putting uh, the hood over the mask or just turning the lights off. One firefighter goes right, one goes left, they find a mannequin, they communicate with each other, they pull the mannequin out, the drill's over. That's fine. But what that is, is that it's like just practicing the movement, practicing the basic skill, which needs to be practiced, but we're not practicing with a greater sense of urgency. 
the way that our special forces may prepare or, or any great athletic team that's competing at a high level prepares. Train with urgency. You know, what if we timed a drill? What if we add some obstacles? You know, I remember one time we did a, a search drill with some newer firefighters. First, I did about a 30-minute class on search and rescue. We covered the, um, the, the three types of search that we cover in our SOGs, uh, uh, oriented search, traditional search, and vent enter search. We also uh, talked about common hiding places, common tools, how to mark a room, all the things that have to do with search. And then we went out and we did that exact drill. One goes right, one goes left, find a mannequin and come back out. But we had three stations going simultaneously. Right after the first one, we had them do uh, 10 flights of stairs, 19 steps up, 19 steps down. While on air, while sweating, while tired, they move immediately to the second station where now they're timed and told you have five minutes now to find a mannequin, pull a mannequin out. So now they're tired, but now we also add some urgency to it. Now it's a little bit more realistic. From there, you go to a third station. And what if you took that third station and you you threw uh, another obstacle in? Not only are we timing you, but blast some music on the radio so loud they can't communicate with each other. Now they have to learn to overcome that. Why would we do that? Why would we do that? I'll tell you why. Think about how calm Sully was when he landed the plane on the Hudson. Think about the radio transmissions when he says... When, he, when he's going through the process of what's happening, when he lost thrust in both engines, and when he says, we're going down in the Hudson. If you've never heard it, it's remarkable. And the one operator says, well, what did he just say? Well, I think he said, they're going down in the Hudson. He was so calm that they, they needed to validate that he actually said what he said. Why was he calm? James, what pilots do, is they'll train in, in, in like a, a simulator. That's kind of like a Disney ride. It's a, they call it the box. They sit in this thing and they train for things to go wrong so they can be prepared for it, so they can overcome challenges. We need to prepare for that, too, because if we take urgency out of training, if we set the bar low, if we do the bare minimum, we will not be able to perform at a high level when we need to perform at a high level. And that's why we're here. That's why we exist. So the challenge becomes, you know, are you going to treat this? the way somebody in a special forces would treat their job. Are you going to treat this like, Hey, you know what? I'm here for the pension. I'm here for the paycheck. Uh, I can do the bare minimum and not lose my job. Because if that's the culture of the organization, the organization is destined for failure in my opinion, because I've seen it too many times where it does happen. Yeah, no. And I agree completely. And the, the realism and the urgency element, I think, is something that's dwindled. And again, we're talking broad strokes. There's departments out there that are doing everything so well. But I exactly. see. Yeah. And I see with and I think this is more on us. So let's, let's put the blame squarely on the firefighters now. A lot of times the the unions are putting pressure. Oh, we don't want an annual fitness test. We don't want, you know, mandatory workouts. We don't want to be able to work out in the rain, in the heat, in the dark. And it gets to the point where these training divisions' hands are tied because they're trying to create some relevant intensity, but we've actually, you know, <laughs> put so many uh, union blocks out that now all you're able to do is to go into a, you know, a mildly tepid burn room with a single pallet in the corner and then call it training. And it's, that's not training. They have one, the, the crappy department's telling you about, they, they were planning a high rise training in a two story building. And I asked, well, are you going to do some sort of exercise at least before you simulate this, you know, two story thing? Oh, no, maybe we'll walk around the building once. 
and I just, you know, facepalm, as they say in the emoji world. I'm like, if you can't understand why you need to have elevation for high-rise training, then I, I, fuck, I, I give up. <laughs> you know, this is the training chief. Yeah. No, listen, and you talk about unions. There's some unions that you can't change a light bulb in a fire station without them coming down on you for doing that because, quote-unquote, that's not our job. So I know what you're talking about, you know. And uh, listen, I, I'm pro-union. But I do know that sometimes they take it to an extreme to where, look, if you're so, you know, so, I guess, pro-union to where you say, you know, we can't train because it is uh, one degree colder than we're allowed to train in or one degree hotter. You know what? I have mixed feelings about stuff like that because I've been in situations where we had a building that was going to be torn down in our community. We only had one week to be able to train and to breach walls and to be able to open up the roof or cut the steel, roll down gates. But you know what? We can't because, you know, it's 84 degrees or 85 degrees and we're not allowed to train at 85 degrees. You know, things like that would be frustrating as an example. Yeah. I actually um, asked Joko Willink that when he was on the show and uh, he said, so you're telling me that you can't train if it's a certain temperature. And he goes, well, what if you get a fire that day? And I just, I was like, yeah, drop the mic. Exactly. Like you should be training past the extremes of anything that you're going to have in your first due. Now, obviously, sensibly, if you're training in cold, you need to have rehab periods where you're warming your people up. If you're training extreme heat like we do in Florida here, you need to have hydration and, and cooling. You know, you're not an idiot about it, but you still train. And, and we have rain here all the time. They won't train in the rain. I say they, some departments, oh, it's raining, we can't train today. What do you mean it's, we have, our entire summer is wet, you know, dark, you know, oh, I'm not going to get up at 2 a.m. When are you most of your structure fires? In the middle of the night. It's not a beautiful, visible day. The parking's different. I mean, everything's different. So, and, and I think that we are our own worst enemies with that. And if you look at your union and your department, if they're blocking physical fitness standards and they themselves are not holding themselves to a standard, that might be an indication you need a clean house and, and, and revamp your union because I'm completely a union guy. I played, you know, my whole career I was a union guy, but I also held myself to a standard. And and so many times department standards were dragged down because individuals protecting themselves because they were too scared to be held to a standard themselves as a firefighter. Yeah, I mean, that's a mouthful and that's something that we need to explore uh, for sure. Hundred percent. You know, unions are big here in New Jersey, and and I honestly I can't even stress it enough. I'm I'm definitely pro union, but I see the challenges that come with it too. And they are they are things a discussion that needs to be had. We've had that fitness discussion for forever. I mean, for more than twenty years, we've talked about that. Trying to set, you know, there would be a group of 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 uh, firefighters that would say, you know, they were interested in setting some kind of a standard or being able to approve working out while you're on duty or whatever it may be. And, and a lot of times they are met with resistance and it is what it is, you know, uh, to some degree, but, uh, you know, I, I don't, there's many fire stations that I go through, uh, that, you know, throughout the country that they put such a high, a high premium on physical fitness, you know, and Montgomery, Alabama is one that comes to mind right away. If you follow their Instagram, uh, it is so impressive by how much they value, uh, the the conditioning of their firefighters. They're always competing in events, uh, you know, fire uh, related events like the combat challenges or just, uh, you know, marathons or Ironman competitions, whatever it may be. 
and they're always posting stuff about their firefighters and uh and i actually spent some time with them it's such an impressive organization and i don't work there but i'm telling you what when from the outside i look at that organization i think man if, if i had to get back into the game i'd want to be in a place like montgomery alabama because of that because i see how much they value what i feel is something that's important you know uh, of having not just a fitness standard but um celebrating people that are taking it to the next level and doing something with it. I don't know what their policies are for working out on duty or if they actually have a specific fitness standard you have to see, but they definitely value uh, great conditioning and high performance uh, from a physical fitness standpoint from the members of the organization. And for that, I celebrate and I appreciate them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a win-win as well. I think people totally miss that. They, there's a, as introduction of a fitness standard, the idea people are like, Oh, it's going to cost all these jobs. Well, firstly, ask a seal, a green beret, a PJ. If they are allowed to get overweight, they're going to be like, no, it'll cost you a job. I mean, you know, you got to do your job. So I think that should apply to us anyway. But of course, not running around with an axe. You create a transitional period where when people need to be mentored back to the shape that they are required to be, that you create all these avenues to do so and bring these people back up and give them the tools that they need. But um, the other side is, you know, when you've buried enough firefighters, as comes a point where you're like, this fitness standard is also going to stop our people dying. I want them to to retire and then enjoy that retirement, that carrot's been dangled in front of them for, you know, 20 plus years after they retire. And our in- industry is losing people about five years after they retire. So that not only are you going to be better at your job, even if you don't have ownership of your job, which you should, and I know you and I get that, then for your family, at least take your fitness serious so that you can actually live after you retire. 100%. Well, 100%. You know, it, it's not, the standard shouldn't be for the job. The standard should be something you set for yourself anyway. Uh, and I guess some people don't see that. You mentioned something, though, in your conversation. So you can't, after you put something like that in place, you can't uh, walk around with the axe. And you're right. And I think that's probably the biggest reason why we do often resist new programs because you think, well, maybe an individual that's implementing this new program is doing it for the wrong reason. Cause maybe there are three firefighters on this job that they know aren't going to um, take this seriously. And this is going to be their avenue to be able to get rid of them. So a union may come in and said, you know what, we're not allowing that to happen. So, you know, it's a double-edged sword sometimes. And I think we both recognize that, but you know, at the very least, you know, we've had these conversations. I've had them with my firefighters where forget about what um, a union will allow. Forget about what kind of fitness standard a department does or doesn't have. We've had these conversations where we said, let's all, you know, enter our own challenge. You know, you, I, you're probably familiar with the Murph challenge, you know. Yeah. So we there was a time uh, in one particular year where it seemed like the majority of the firefighters on my group, including myself, were regularly um, taking MRF challenges. Sometimes they do it on duty. Most of the times we were doing it off duty. And we'd come in and we'd compare our times and talk about it. Sometimes two firefighters would, would uh, be off duty. They'd be working out together. They'd do it. And uh, to me, that was a fun time because we were all very um, serious about just wanting to get in better shape. And we had a goal and that's half the battle right there. You, if you want to achieve success uh, as a goal, you know, I think it was Brendan Burchard that said uh, drama is an indication that a team's not connected to a meaningful goal. 
I loved trying to find meaningful goals for the organization. But from a fitness standpoint, one of the goals that uh, a group of us had set was revolved around the Murph Challenge and trying to get under certain times. And for me, that was a very fun time. Yeah. And the Murph Challenge is just a great event because you literally just need a bar. That's it, a pull-up bar. So you're running, push-ups, pull-ups, and squats. So Yeah. Well, I guess, yeah, I should explain it for people that don't know. It was a one-mile run uh, followed by uh, 100 pull-ups, 200 push-ups, uh, 300 air squats, then another one-mile run wearing a weighted vest. And it was named after Michael Murphy, um, the Navy SEAL who, if, if you've seen the movie Lone Survivor, he's the one that climbed up to the top to get the radio signal that ended up saving uh, a life. And, um, you know, that was Michael Murphy's, uh, from what I understand, his routine. So it's easy to find online, but it's something that uh, that I, I really, you know, now that I'm mentioning it, I feel like I need to set the goal to go do it again because it's, uh, it's just a great, it's a great physical challenge. Yeah, no, it's amazing. And, and so going back to that deconditioned firefighter, so people listening that haven't worked out are going to be like, well, there's no way in hell I could do that. Well, that's the beautiful thing about working as a team is some of you put the body armor on, some of you do it without the body armor, in gear, not in gear, but then you can also do half murph, quarter murph. Okay, you're just going to walk 400 meters while they run their mile, you know, and then do push-ups on your knees and ring rows instead of pull-ups. And, you know, air squats, if you have to hold, you know, a post to balance yourself. But there's, there's, take that first step, work out with your crew. And I, I used to set up, um, you know, workouts in, in my old station. And I would tell the guys, it doesn't matter what is on the barbell. It doesn't matter if you're scaling or using a band or whatever. The whole point is that we're all going to be just as tired at the end and you're going to feel amazing. And you took the first step. And the most powerful thing you can have is someone asks you, Hey, when did you last work out? Well, you know what? Actually, today is when I last worked out, and I feel really freaking good about it. Yeah, no doubt. You know, I, I used to be, I worked as a fitness instructor, not a personal trainer, but a fi fitness instructor for uh, some time. Actually, I was firefighter and a fitness instructor for a short period of time. I loved that time. And I had a number of firefighters that worked on my crew at, when I was a deputy chief that were also at different levels. Some were captains, some were firefighters. They were also either physical trainers or or, or uh, fitness instructors, and they understood all of this, and they understood the value of repetitions, not just when it came to developing your body, but when it came to developing your skill set. There's a quote that I say quite often, that unused skills fade quickly, and it happens in, in sports, athletics, it happens in business, and it certainly happens in the fire service. If you don't use the skill, you'll lose the skill, and these... Um, these guys that I worked with that had backgrounds in the fitness industry, um, I learned to really value them because they understood the power and the value of repetition. And they took that, what they learned from, from their time in the gym, and they turned it into their time out on the training ground and understood you can't just drag hose once. You have to do it regularly. You can't just throw ladders once. You have to do it consistently because again unused skills fade quickly and so um you know and and also i find that people with uh, with backgrounds in fitness tend to uh in some ways be more mentally strong too because that little voice i mentioned earlier at the beginning of this podcast that tells you you're not good enough uh they've learned to 
combat that voice, to do that extra rep, to run that extra mile, to do, you know, when their body's telling them to quit, they go a little bit further. And that's valuable, especially when it comes to, hey, we need to push a little bit further and a little bit further and a little bit harder to try to make this rescue or put out this fire. You need to be able to beat that voice. Yeah, no, I love that. Tim Kennedy calls it kill the quitter. And it's so true. Like there's, there's times where let's take Murph, for example, first round, you just happen to be feeling rough that day. We're in Florida here. It's, you know, a hundred plus degrees and, and you're doing it in your gear. And, you know, right off the bat, you're like, yeah, we, we should just stop. But that's fine. If you're an accountant, take your stuff off, you know, just tap out, whatever. But if someone's life depends on your profession, you're a firefighter, police officer, a member of the military, you don't get to just stop. You know, slow down a bit if you need to, but, but you have to keep going. And I totally agree with that. I think those kind of workouts physically are, are a great tool, but it's a crucible that you can put yourself in a horrible place two, three times a week. So God forbid you get to a point where, you know, you're really in that dark place in a fire and, you know, dive rescue, whatever it is that you're doing, that you will have that mental fortitude to carry out what your mission is. No doubt. No doubt. And I like that you're, that you, quote people like Tim Kennedy and Jocko, you know, a lot of people, if you're not familiar with Tim Kennedy and other uh, special forces, but also a guy that competed uh, in MMA in the UFC. So talk about a guy that understands um, what it takes to push your body and your mind to the next level. Probably not two better men on the planet than the two you mentioned right yeah. there. Yeah, no, I agree. Tim's been on twice now and uh, I just trained with him the other day. I went to uh, jujitsu with him in Austin. And when I say with him, he allowed me to share the mat while he didn't murder me <laughs> that's about yeah. as close as i can put it um but yeah now now going back to the repetition though i just had a great conversation with two medics um uh sam and chris and uh sam and chris adams and they were talking about repetition as well and that's something that i've observed it within myself like you you find again some of these departments some of these training divisions start checking boxes and you're not really training you just you're just doing a paperwork so if anything goes wrong they say oh well they were they were shown that and their whole thing was about if you find yourself becoming bored in in the fire service now firstly we're we're responsible for so many skills i find that hard to believe anyway but secondly the ones that you think you have it's time to go revisit them and i gave them the example of uh, vmr I, i take um vmr class every couple years now, I have the piece of paper multiple times now, but that's a week of extrication training on multiple cars. You know, that's muscle memory. That's that's training like an athlete. Whereas if you did VMR 15 years ago and now you have a difficult extrication, the chances of you being able to recall that met that uh, information then are pretty much zero. Right. No, I listen, you know, it comes down to this. It comes down to mastery of skills. We don't talk about this enough in the fire service. When I was in high school, I went to a wrestling club. Uh, Right now, if you lived in New Jersey, and I mentioned uh, this particular wrestling club, everyone in New Jersey knows that they they had countless number of state champs and national champs come from this club. But when I went, it was the first year that this club had formed in the basement of the parents' house of the kids that started it. Now, these were uh, a group of brothers, and some of them were, a couple of them were state champions and national champions. But... Now, when I here I am in the basement and I'm there to, to learn things I don't know, yet in the corner are two of the brothers, both have won multiple state champions, and they're doing a single leg takedown over and over and over and over and over against each other. And as I'm watching this, 
I'm thinking, now here I am a high school kid. I think I'm a junior, maybe a senior in high school. And I'm watching this thinking, why are they wasting their time doing the most simple, basic 101 move when they're both state champions? And quite honestly, one of them is known as the greatest takedown artist that and most of us have ever seen. It wasn't until years later that it, that it actually clicked with me. That's why he's one of the best. Because muscle memory. And he's doing it over and over and over again. So where, where a common thing to you and me, like eating a sandwich, that's how common it was for these brothers to do a single or a double leg takedown because they did it that often and that much. And they wouldn't allow themselves to lose the skill. And still on that, you know, I want to talk a little bit more about, about this because uh, I remember speaking with the head coach for Rutgers Wrestling, um, Division One, uh, Rutgers Wrestling, Big Ten. Uh, and I spoke to Scott Goodell, who's their head wrestling coach, about how when I was in high school, there were kids that won state championships that only knew two or three moves. And I said to him, I know at the, at the collegiate level, you need to know a lot more than that to win a national championship. And he says, no, you don't. And I said, no, I mean a Division One national championship. He says, you don't. He said, you could win a Division One national championship if you master just a couple of moves. And I said, do you really agree with that? And in our conversation, he said, look at my assistant coach. Donnie Pritzloff won two national championships with Wisconsin. And he really, as good as he was all around, he mastered a single leg takedown that nobody could stop. And he went on to talk about how if you master a skill that's unstoppable in a sport like that, uh, you're always going to score points. Now, relate that to our job. Go anywhere in the country, sit down with an engine company, a ladder company that's on duty, anywhere in the country, anyone that's listening to this, think about how you would answer this. What skills have you mastered? I didn't ask, what do you know? I didn't ask, do you know how to vent? Do you know how to advance lines? Do you know how to, uh, are you good at water supply? Are you good at, at uh, search and rescue? What skills have you mastered? And I think we need to start thinking about, this is our profession, athletes master skills, special forces master skills. We need to master skills too. That doesn't mean you need to master every skill, it's impossible. But if you have a four member company, what if each one of you mastered one or two skills? How much more effective would you be at your job? Yeah, no, I, I agree 100%. And you're right, we are jack of all trades, master of none technically, but there are absolutely areas that you can be extremely strong on. I was in a, a truck company for several years in California, and I, I loved it you know, that we were we were the roof guys and the, the extrication guys. That was our primary thing, really. And so, you know, ladders and, and all the the uh, the skills that were attached to that were our bread and butter. Was I a master then? No. I mean, I've only got 15 years now. I think I'd be incredibly arrogant to think I'd mastered anything. Even putting my SCBA on, I can still do that better than I do right now. Um, but like you said, that repetition, and, and while I was talking to Sam and Chris as well, I think that stems a lot from humility. If you, as a 30-year firefighter, think you have all the answers, then it's time for you, time for you to retire. And I think we see that in a lot of young departments now where there's guys with two or three years on strutting around. Like, you don't need to retire, but you certainly need to control, alt, delete your ego and 
you know, take a step back and find some real mentors and, and realize how little you know. And then, as you said, then start drilling. Just pick something every single shift. It doesn't have to be with all your gear on. It can be, you know, IO or, you know, anything. Just, just pick a skill because the moment we stop training, we're falling further and further behind from this incredible skill set that we're, we're supposed to master. You don't stay in one spot and you're either getting better or you're getting worse at all times, you know, as, as far as teamwork goes and ability and skill set, you, 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 it's hard to maintain without practice. And so that's what we have to think about is, is what I'm doing right now or is what I'm about to do going to get me closer to becoming better? And is it going to get me closer to my goal? And if not, don't do it. And that's something I think we all need to, to start doing, you know, is to take actions with specific intent. This action is going to help me achieve something or it's going to push me further away from something. And we, we can't really um, determine that unless we first sit down and say, well, what do we want to be good at? What do we want to be known for? Have these conversations. Sit down with your team and say, you know, what do we want people to say about us after we leave the scene? And let's work to become that team. It's not that, that hard, you know. And when people say, yeah, but – we have this challenge or that challenge. I don't think any organization or any company in the country needs permission to become great at their job. I think they just need to sit down and say, hey, even if we have challenges internally, let's do what we can to become the best we possibly can at our job. And let's let's understand that when people are having their worst moments, we're the ones that are coming to, to save the day. So let's let's be great at what we do. Have pride be great you know you don't need permission for that yeah i agree and sadly that can only exist within a crew if you're in a very toxic environment but you can get three other human beings or two other if you're on a three-man unit at least when your vehicle responds you can be that group and i, and I you know hold my head up high and knowing that i've been part of of several great companies where when we've shown up people are happy not that we're like some you know revered group but there's we all know there's crews that show up that you're glad that they did and there's crews that show up that you hope they'll just turn around and go back to the station you know so you want to be that one that you are adding value to whatever scene you're arriving to 100 percent right well um let i want to talk about the work week in a little bit as well because i know you're your area, I think, is is um, in a different place than a lot of the states. But before we get to that, while we're on this subject of um, you know, trying to be the best firefighter you can be in certain environments, when you do go to these departments that just don't have that strong leadership, what are some of the things that you bring to them um, that hopefully will will help improve those environments? Well, the first thing is awareness. You know, again, I mentioned this earlier, but you can't fix a problem if you refuse to acknowledge that it exists in the first place. So um, if I were to come in and do, for example, a full step up and lead seminar, it's broken up into two main categories. And one is leadership traits. And the second is leadership skills. And in the leadership traits, uh, you know, it's, it's two hours of a discussion of, of what are the traits that that we need to become successful uh, out there leading teams and quite honestly leading ourselves, you know, like the ability to adapt as an example. And so, you know, we'll talk a little bit about that, but over the course of, of this training, uh, 
you know, you can imagine over two hours talking about leadership traits. There's a lot of stories that I'll share um, that that help people become more aware. And with, uh, you know, awareness is power, because when you can see something and say, hey, you know what, this is something that I've been doing. And now I understand why I'm not getting a good result. You know, if it's a if it's an action you've been taking, that's incorrect. Uh, if you've been micromanaging and maybe you don't realize you've been micromanaging, I talk about that and I talk about how to how to not be a micromanager, three steps to take to not micromanage. And and but from there, um, we lead into leadership skills. How do you build morale? How do you criticize properly? How do you identify or deal with insubordination? Uh, you know, uh, how do you have an effective meeting? How do you delegate properly? And uh, I've, I'm a I'm a big strong believer that we learn not so much from experience. We've told well, I've, you've been told this your whole life, so have I. Experience is the best teacher. Experience is the best teacher. I disagree completely. I think other people's experience is the best teacher in an industry where people can lose their lives, but also in an industry where we are so great at collecting and disseminating information. We have near miss reports. We have fatality reports. We have people with websites, articles on fire engineering, firehouse magazine that are out there consistently about people sharing their experience. We'd be crazy not to learn from them. We'd be crazy not to take this and say, okay, how can I be better? Um, But many times what I see uh, if you walk into a fire station is you see a pile of of seven-year-old fire engineering magazines stacked up with dust collected on them that maybe were thumbed through once by one member of the organization instead of passed around by everybody as soon as it came out. Uh, The information's there, James. You know this. The internet. I mean, YouTube's incredible. You know, you can see incidents. You can see um, things go wrong on fire grounds, and we could sit down and we could use that as a as a training exercise. Uh, and, and one of the things I like to do is bring awareness to teams, and just say, um, I talk about my mistakes first of all. I don't sit there and say, Hey, I'm the authority on on team development. I'm the authority on leadership. I know how to do everything right. No, I'm going to tell you everything I did wrong, and then I'll tell you some of the things I did right. But I'll share with you why it's wrong. I'll share with you why this is right so we understand it better because there's power in that power. And awareness is the starting point. Um, A lot of times, like I'll ask this question in a class. How many people in this room, I used to say, work for a micromanager. I don't say that anymore. Because when I used to say it, almost every hand in a room would go up. And sometimes there'd be three hands behind a hand going up, pointing at the guy who's raising her hand in front of them. (laughs) But now I say, how many people in this room have at one point in their life, in or out of the fire service, worked for a micromanager? 90% of the hands in every room I ask that question go up. 90%. So then I spend the next 10 minutes talking about why micromanaging uh, negatively affects a group. and Or why long, unnecessary meetings can negatively affect a group. And then talk about how not to do those things and how to do it properly. Yeah, uh, with the micromanaging as well, it's it seems to be an ego thing. I, I, again, I've I've worked for some some great leaders and some awful ones that are more concerned about their Facebook than they are about being on the fire ground. Um, and what it boils down to is it's training and it's trust. And and for trust, you have to remove your ego. So a good leader 
drill set of people in a good way is part of the team is out there washing the rig with them you know is totally a part of that crew but gets them to the point where it's like all right i'm cutting the apron strings now you know you get on scene they give clear concise directions and then you put your big boy pants on or your big girl pants and you go handle it and then you report back and say what you told us to do is done and the reverse i find is with with the people that can't control their ego is they want to be the puppeteer because they don't want to be seen as their crew be able to function without them. The reality is when as a leader, they're not functioning without you. You're part of that. You're just allowing them to go do their job. A very good friend of mine is a a colonel in the army. And I talked to him about micromanaging one day. I mean, him and I went to grammar school together. I've known him forever. And I asked him, do you ever micromanage? He says, never. And in our conversation, and I'm going to paraphrase all of this, but he said, you know, my job is to prepare He's, he, he trains our infantry. He said, my job is to prepare people to kill or be killed. He goes, and, and how effective could I be at preparing people for hand-to-hand combat, for, for ground combat, if I'm making every decision for them every time we train or micromanaging, criticizing them every single time they do something wrong? My job is to put them in difficult situations, let them learn how to make decisions and support them and prepare them because if they don't succeed, we don't succeed. You know, and when, when we talk about micromanaging, listen, you want to manage the outcomes. If you're leading a team, if you want to manage the outcomes, you have every right to do that because we're looking for an outcome. But all too many times people manage the process people do to get to the outcomes. And that's the challenging part is when, for example, if I said to you, James, tie me a knot, and you tie me the specific knot I asked for, and you hand it to me, and I say, yeah, you tied the right knot, this is it, but I don't like the way you tied it. I tie it differently. I want you tying it my way. What am I doing that for? Ego, like you mentioned, because you gave me the end result I'm looking for. So how about we just be happy understanding? People may have a different process to get to the end result, but I mean, I coach several baseball teams. You know, my, my son is a pitcher. I brought him for a pitching lesson one time only because I wanted to make sure I'm not teaching him anything that's going to hurt his arm. And the pitching coach uh, in one lesson basically said, you know, his mechanics look fantastic for his age. He's throwing strikes. That's all you want. Um, He's doing a a great job. Uh, When he gets older, you're going to want to change how he holds the baseball from two seam to four seam. And he showed it to me. He said, but for now, he's doing fine. So me, I'm thinking, well, hey, why wait till he gets older? Let me change it. And I started trying to work with my son to, to try to get him a change. He, and he just couldn't even throw a strike holding it the other way. And, you know, in retrospect, I realized his hand was too small, you know, and he, and he just didn't feel comfortable. But then I started realizing, wait a minute, he's throwing strikes. At the age of nine, he's doing his job. So why am I going to try to micromanage the way he's doing his job when he's doing it quite well? And he's going to have time to learn how to do it better. He's going to have time to learn five, six different pitches. Uh, But right now, all I'm looking for is consistent strikes, and he's doing it. So let me just do what he does. So manage the outcomes, yes. Manage the process people do to get to the outcomes, I would caution against. I would also say find out what talent, skills, and ability people have on your team. Let them run in their lanes and get out of their way. And if you don't have people that have the, the sufficient talent, skills or abilities you need, then when you delegate, delegate with the intentions of developing your team to have those skills. 
you know, so put them in a position where they can learn the skills, put them in, uh, in a position along with somebody that can help teach them the skills, talk to the person and, and ask them to help mentor them so we can get more people that we can put in more positions to be successful. See, on my department, here's the deal. You could show up one day, you could be first line on the engine company, and, and later that evening, you could be on the back of the ladder or maybe even driving it. So on any given day, you could be sitting in every any different position. You need to know a lot about a lot, you know. So, you know, it's very important that, that when we're training people that everybody's playing a part in preparing them because you never know who you're going to be sitting next to next to the apparatus that afternoon let alone when the shift begins, anything can happen. You know, we have training today. We need to move people around. This person missed training. So you were driving the engine at the beginning of the day, but at 10 o'clock, we're sending you up for training. We're putting somebody in that that has never pumped at a, at an, at a, uh, a, a working fire before, but now you're going to be driving the engine. And if we get something, guess what? That's our guy or girl for the day. So when we're training that person, utilize the talent, skills, and ability of the other people around you and ask them to say, hey, we're all, we're, we're all one team with one mission. We need to get people ready to serve in these positions. We need your help to do it. So when you delegate, you develop skill sets of other members of your team, and you have more people put in the lanes based on their talent, skills, and ability, and you'll tend to micromanage less unless your ego is that big where you just can't humble yourself enough to do it. And that's a whole other problem. Yeah, and it goes back to what you were saying about the the single leg drill. It reminds me of uh, one of the guys I used to train with in um, Muay Thai. He was actually a jiu-jitsu guy, but he went into uh, MMA for a little bit. But his name Giva Santana, and he they called him the arm collector because every single one of his wins was by armbar. Um, and so he again was was a master of that technique. But in the fire ground with those repetitions, also starting with the basics. Like I've you know I'm I'm no fire god by any means, but Pretty much every hydrant I've caught is kind of the same thing. I've wrapped the hydrant, you know, connected it or flushed it, connected it and turned it on. You know, there's a lot of things that we do are kind of almost overcomplicated. So if you're drilling the basics over and over and over again, then when that person goes to a different crew, a different rig, a different, you know, first Jew, if they have the mastery of those basics, then they actually have the ability to pick their head up a little bit and then... um uh, you know, move with whatever adjustments need to be made. But if you're not drilling, you're not training, you're setting these people up for failure right from the beginning. Yeah, 100%. I agree with you 100% on that. And, and we all need to just acknowledge that. So, because we can't fix it unless we sit back and we say, all right, what can we do better? And And you mentioned this earlier, and I want to reiterate this. There are some departments that are great at it. They're doing everything right. They're great examples. I, and I meet these people all the time, too. I meet people who are extremely passionate, extremely dedicated. Uh, and sometimes I look at them and I'm in awe thinking, wow, you know what? I wish, you know, sometimes they're, they're 23, 25, 27 years old and they have the attitude that I wish I had when I was 23, 25 or 27. You know, they, they, they have a, a much greater level of awareness of what it is we do and what their responsibility is. Uh, than maybe myself or some other people had when we were that age, you know, and, and that actually leads to something that we should probably touch on is you, you have the right, everyone listening, you have the right to improve, grow, change, and become better. If, if you were in a situation where maybe 
you look back at some a decision you made in the past. I don't know. I asked this question in my seminars too. How many of you in this room have ever made a decision in your past that you regret that if you had to do it over again, you'd probably choose another uh, or another way of doing it? And almost every hand in the room goes up. I think every hand always does go up actually. And and the first thing I tell them is, hey, forgive yourself. You made a mistake. You made a bad decision. We've all done it. But the question is not so much to be focused on what we did in the past. It's where do we go from here? So where do you go from here? You know, if you're aware that change needs to occur in your organization, why don't you sit down and make the determination that you're going to be one of the people that help lead the change in that direction? You have the power to do it. All of us do. You know, but a lot of times we sit back and we think uh, this is going to be someone else's responsibility. I'd rather just sit here and be miserable. Well, you know what? No, maybe there's something you could do, something you could say, a conversation you can have, a training you could schedule, um, you know, a discussion, whatever it may be, because that's where it all starts. It all starts with, again, us just sitting down and having the right discussions and conversations. How do you solve problems? Dialogue, discussion, debate. That's how we solve problems. We don't solve them by ignoring them. We don't solve them by getting angry with people and not trying to solve them. We solve them by actually sitting down, having dialogue, discussion, debate, and being aware that we can do things to make improvements. So let's do it. Everybody has the power to do it, James. Yeah, no, I agree. And, I, and I've tried to make differences in the, the last three. The first one, I was brand new and, you know, was too busy screwing everything up as a probie. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, and, and again, in that environment, there are some where you'll thrive. If you, if you pick up an area that you think you can help improve and you bring a solution to a problem they'll be right behind you and then you'll find like most recently you'll pick it up and you'll get it thrown back in your face see we don't have this problem you know we don't need an mci plan in you know a theme park for example <laughs> um but uh you know whatever you all you can do is your best and it's that build it they will come and sometimes it might just be that specific crew that you're on it might be your station it might even be your shift but the worst thing is to just get angry and not do anything about it. And then that last one, like I said, ultimately came to the point where this is an environment where I've tried for X amount of time. I'm going to transition to something different now. But again, you can look back and go, but I tried, you know, and, you know, I was not going to be able to make the kind of difference that I would want within my career. So I'm going to change things now. But I didn't spend five years mindlessly bitching. I tried to actually affect difference which i truly believe some you know remnant of is still helping improve some areas there but the worst thing like you're saying is to be that person that whines about everything and doesn't bring a solution to a problem yeah and, and that goes back to what i mentioned earlier the world's full of problem finders and we need more problem solvers and that's why people in our industry exist you know, so again, work on, on finding solutions for things. You know, I was asked recently if I had any exercises to help people develop their ability to lead. And, you know, I, I thought after that, I thought, you know what, I should do that. I should bring some exercises into a class. And so here I am, I start researching exercises for leadership. And, then I, you know, it suddenly dawned on me, you don't need any exercises to help develop your ability to lead. The world is full of problems. I mean, there's, there's, there's challenges everywhere, a fire station that needs to get, or just an apparatus, a compartment that needs to get cleaned, you know, uh, something, uh, an SOP that needs to be changed, whatever it may be. So 
I, I came up with this very simple leadership 101 concept that I talk about in the class and in the book, which is this. If you want to develop your ability to lead, here it is, four simple steps. One, identify a problem. That's not going to be hard. They exist everywhere. So identify a problem. Two, assemble a group of people. Why? Because we're talking about leading. So maybe there's one person, maybe there's two people, maybe there's a whole company, maybe there's a whole department. Three, develop a plan or a solution on how we can solve the problem. And four, solve the problem. So identify, assemble, develop, and solve. Those four steps. And if you do that over and over and over, you become a problem solver and problem solvers are leaders. So to me, that's just a simple leadership one-on-one thing. And I hope that everybody that gets off this call First of all, I hope you don't go around looking for problems. You're, they're there. The point is, when you encounter a problem, I hope that you say, what can I do to solve it? And get some people involved, work on on plans, let the best ideas win, go out and solve the problem, and just repeat the process. Yeah, and I think yeah, they talk about uh, understanding the why of, of anything in life, you know? And I think that if... If you're looking around, let's say you're you're higher up in a department, you know, and and there's a disconnect, is there has the has the the goal, the mission been lost that that lives depend on you? Because I think if there's an ownership of that why and understanding that if we do not act as we need to, that literally people will die. That in itself will take take you know will, will be a motivator for leadership for you know, mentorship for being a good student at, you know, all levels. And, and I think it's more of a principle from what I can see is when you understand the mission and our mission is extremely important, then that in itself will start shifting and moving people. But if you forget why you're there, if you think it's about, and I heard this quoted in my last department, all you do is put your gear on the rig and do your 24. If that's your philosophy, you're thinking about your, your benefits and your, your paycheck then you've completely lost your way. And if you can put back that idea of every single day, I need to get better because lives depend on me as a chief, as a, as an engineer, whatever level you're at, that to me is how you really bolster that leadership as well. I agree with you. And I, you know, I've had this conversation with people in the past where you know, so, uh, somebody who's supposed to be a leader on an apparatus or at a fire station uh, is just in a bad mood and... Uh, coming to work with the wrong uh, outlook on things and, and not performing at a high level and allowing drama uh, to exist. And I've had this conversation where I've said, look, you know, you're here for the next 24 hours. And let's imagine for a moment that, God forbid, something happened at your house while you're here and there was a fire or some kind of tragedy and your parents and children, I mean, your your spouse and children were in a, a situation where they needed the engine company to come or the ladder company to come and save them. Would you want that company showing up with the same attitude you have right now? You know, where they're showing up, they're kind of miserable, you know, uh, and I've heard the saying, would you want you rescuing you? That's essentially the question I'm asking them. And the point being is you may not be you may not be the one that's called to action today, but you might be. And you have to be prepared for that at every given moment. 
And if you're having a bad day, you're entitled to a bad day. But but I always try to tell myself, leave the bad day outside the firehouse. Try to try to bring the best of me inside because lives are going to depend on me being on top of my game. And everybody, every firefighter needs to be reminded of that consistently because it's the truth. Yeah. No, and I, I actually kind of alter that statement myself because I think if you say, would you want you rescuing you as a fireman there's a, or a firefighter, there's a certain element of, well, I'm able to kind of self-rescue as well. So would you want you running on your children, your helpless three-year-olds, five-year-olds, whatever you've got, would you want that person to be the one that happens to have to climb a resort hotel 18 stories after God knows what's happened? And how would you feel if you knew that your partner's kids died because you hadn't taken ownership of your skills or your fitness to the point where you couldn't facilitate that rescue. If that doesn't motivate you, then then you really don't need to be doing this job. And it, it sounds harsh, but it's true. Like that's what we have to remind ourselves every day when we put our gear on the rig, that literally you are the last resort for some of these people that we run on. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. And uh, and it's easy to fall into this, uh, uh, what what a friend of mine refers to as a coma of complacency. But uh, you and I know complacency kills, you know. And I remember uh, reading the National Fallen Firefighters Foundation put out um, the contributing factors to line of duty deaths. Now we know the causes of line of duty deaths, like heart heart failure, uh, as an example, being number one. But this was the contributing factors that lead to the leading causes. And, and one of them was complacency, but one of them was this, it was the acceptance of accidental success. And think about the power of that statement. So here I am, uh, Hey, nothing's ever gone wrong. Fire's always gone out. Nobody's been hurt. Uh, and even if we know we're not doing things to the best of our ability, we're still getting the job done. And we rely on that. Hey, you know, that's like an athlete saying, you know what? We know our team's not that good. We haven't played championship competition yet, but we're beating these lower-ranked teams, so we're fine. And then all of a sudden, you play those championship teams, and you get blown away. Well, you know what? That happens in sports, so be it. That happens in the fire ground. Well, people lose their lives. So that's where we need to be our best, and that's what we need to train to. And that's what we need to be, and that's why I'm glad we're having this conversation. We need to be consistently talking about what do we need to do to become the best version of ourselves as a team and as an individual? Yeah, and and you spoke about this in in the uh, conference when I heard you talk, and it kind of reminded me to talk about this as well. Now is that mentality of it's never happened, therefore it won't happen. And I see this so much in in this most recent place, and you know anyone that that understands gambling math. Every time it hasn't happened, it's more likely to happen. And there in, in business world, people pay hackers millions of dollars to simulate every single assault on their business as they can. And yet you are telling me that over and above pulling a crosslay and catching a hydrant, everything else you'll be able to figure it out when it comes along. And I say, bullshit. You have to think about all the worst case scenarios, you know, in general, you can't specify every single scenario. But what if it happens this way, this way, this way, and start coming up with action plans? They don't want need to be a hard and fast SOP, but you definitely need to expose your crews to be able to critically think their way around some of these incidents. And like you were saying earlier, with that realism, with that urgency, 
so that God forbid they have a Vegas shooting or a 9-11 or, you know, any of these large scale events, one of those, that horrendous, um, wreck in the, the tunnel in Los Angeles. You know, these, these are out of left field events, but those events don't care. Those people trapped don't care. You're still the people on the rigs with the flashing lights that have to go mitigate that problem. Yeah, you know, what we, and we're talking about situational awareness of, of developing a stronger sense of situational awareness. And what is situational awareness when you think about it? It, it? it ultimately, it's seeing the bad things before they happen. And your situational awareness, it, it's your instincts, you know, and instincts, no two people have the same level of instincts. So how do we prepare that? You know, maybe it could be books or videos. Maybe it could be attending seminars. I do both and I found great value. In, in both of them, but certainly on the job training drills is our, our best way because we're practicing the skill. But then, of course, you have real world incidents, you know, when something occurs and we can now go back and, and have a post incident analysis and learn from this. And I hope every department has some form of a way of documenting their PIAs so they could pass that information on, not just to the people that were at that incident, but to, you know, to people five years down the line, 10 years down the line, where they can share some kind of a, a form and say, hey, look, this is the, that fire, that big fire they had 15 years ago in our community. Here's the PIA from that incident. What did we learn from it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look at the Columbine shooting. You know, there's a lot of lessons learned. A lot of us still haven't found the answer yet, but we can't, we can't be staging while children are bleeding just one window pane away from where the rescuers were. And, and there's a perfect example of people saying, well, that's not going to happen here. And how many times has it happened since Columbine? And I'll tell you, James, this is this is really disturbing for me because I have been in so many states where when somebody picks me up at the airport and takes me to the hotel, they say, yeah, that's the temple where the shooting happened. They're right there. That's the movie theater where that shooting happened that's the school where the shooting happened and i'm passing these places looking at them thinking wow i mean this theater is just like the one i go to and that school is just like the one my kids go to and and this temple you know is like one right in my community and i'm thinking well this actually can happen in my community 100 percent can happen in my community in my in my community right now they actually have uh armed armed uh retired police officers in every school every single school right now. And I think it's fantastic. You know, I think they're all retired anyway, but uh, other uh, whatever it is, I'm not sure. Uh, but, but they're armed officers. And I don't think it's fantastic that we have to have them. I think it's fantastic that we do have them in today's society, because at least that's my community saying, Hey, there's no guarantee that it can't happen here. So we're going to take a, at least this one precaution to try to prepare and, and prevent it from happening. Yeah, yeah, because I mean that's that's definitely uh, you know a long term problem that we have to fix. I think it involves many elements, including you know mental health and you know all, all kinds of things. Parenting. I mean, there's such a, a depth to that problem at the moment, and it's not going to be overnight. So, do I want to see police officers guarding my grandchildren's school? Absolutely not. But for right now, we're in the middle of a crisis where schools, churches, WalMarts, you name it, you know. That we have to have a, a short-term solution. So I've never been, you know, quote unquote, pro-gun, but since moving to America, I've seen the value of today having one. 
with the hope that one day that we're going to be able to change that. But right now, as we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, our leaders are certainly not spreading peace and kindness and compassion. So it's not going to get better until we start having people that really educate the population on the underlying issues and put things into place. I mean, I think even things like decriminalization of drugs, like Portugal has done, I had the gentleman that, that spearheaded that, has done amazing things for the country. And look what's happening in Mexico now. I mean, we're, we're losing people of, of their, you know, their nationality and our nationality on a daily basis because of this drug war. So all these things that we can fix are completely fixable, but it's not going to happen overnight. And so in the meantime, the sad fact is, like you said, we need to have these deterrents in place and, and you know, need to to not bring a knife to a gunfight. No, you're right. You're right. And you talk about the problem with uh, drugs. That's another conversation I have in my seminars where we talk about, uh, you know, if there's a, a problem with heroin or drugs uh, in their area, everywhere I go, everywhere I go, they're like, yes, it's a huge problem here. And I'm thinking it seems to be a huge problem everywhere. And James, think about this. So our politicians, they spend a lot of time arguing with each other and trying to discredit each other. I don't hear any one of them. I don't hear any one of them saying, we're going to do something about this problem. And if they do say it, I don't see them actually do it. So what are we doing here? Why are we even arguing about about politics when our politicians, many of them, aren't even focused on, on the biggest problems? They, they want to focus more on dividing parties and getting votes and getting themselves in positions of power instead of saying, well, let's actually talk about what the problems are and how we could solve them. So maybe they're not doing it to the level that I wish they were doing it. And some of them are. I'm not I'm not I don't want to have a blanket statement saying none of them do it. But but let's just take this into our organizations and say, let's be different. Let's talk about problems. You know, you had someone on your podcast the other day uh, say something that was very enlightening to me because we were talking about uh, suicide. Now, suicide is something that has, you know, affected uh, you know, my family through uh, relatives or distant relatives that, you know, I've seen uh, and certainly I've had friends that have taken their lives and or I've known people, uh, you know, so I think everybody uh, has some kind of connection to it. But on your podcast, uh, your guest talked about sleep deprivation and how it destroys the body and brain's chemistry. And, and he mentioned that uh, that. Uh, that's the reason that's a primary tool for torture interrogation and special forces selection. And I thought, I wish, I wish that I n knew that earlier because I never really sat and thought about that. But you don't, you know, if you don't get enough sleep, as an example, uh, that could just change your body and your brain chemistry and little things like that, that had I, had awareness of that and I could spread that kind of message and things like that to some of the people I work with and educate them a little bit on that and start again, talking about solutions to things because you know what happens before somebody makes a decision like that. A lot of times their life is in turmoil. When's the hardest time to sleep when your life's in turmoil, you know? So, and why am I even bringing this up? I bring this up for, for a reason because somebody may be listening to this podcast and their life is in turmoil. I got news for you. We're either in a crisis right now, just got out of a crisis, or you're heading towards a crisis. You know, that's that's life. So we all deal with challenges. 
but I think it's really important that that we understand that because we are a community, there are people here that can help you. There are people here that you can call, that you can talk to. I've had, because I've told stories, uh, very personal stories about myself or people that I know in my class that I wouldn't say on a podcast because many times it's it's meant for a room of 100 or less. But I've had people call me up and say, thank you for sharing that story because I've been dealing with these uh, challenges. And I'm very happy and refreshed to know that it's not me. You know, I talk about uh, a time that I went through such a high level of stress because of work and personal issues that had, uh, I guess, overwhelmed me. And I had started, I developed an irregular heartbeat and I went to a doctor and he tested me out. And at the end of it, he said, look, everything works fine. And, and he asked me, am I, if, am I under any stress? I said, Doc, I live in Jersey. You see my taxes? Of course I'm under stress. <laughs> you know. But in our conversation, I started to realize that I was under more stress than I had that I had understood because stress to me works a lot like carbon monoxide. When a carbon monoxide alarm goes off, it's because it's either got this incredible, you know, burst of carbon monoxide that set it off, or just a little bit that over time caused that alarm to activate and for me it was just a little bit over time and then a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more and it built up built up built up next thing you know i'm in a doctor getting my heart checked why because it was too much and so and i share the stories of what happened that brought me to that level but the point is is we all get there we all get there you know, there's always every person has a point where where they can't do any more um, and they need a break, an emotional break, a physical break, or they just need to sit back and, and rethink everything and say, well, maybe I'm doing a little bit too much. But, but where I'm going with all this is we need to take care of each other. We need to be aware of these things happening in our coworkers. If someone's behavior changes. Uh, around a fire station and they're no longer with the group they're spending a lot of time alone they're arguing on a phone with the spouse they're doing things that uh, that are uncharacteristic of them they're messing up on a job we're so quick to to just call people out for making a mistake but what if it's an uncharacteristic mistake and it's something they haven't done for 15 years and all of a sudden now they're there is there something happening in their personal life talk to them take care of each other we're in a foxhole together all the time in a fire service. This is what we are. You're consistently in a foxhole, ready to do battle. So we have to take care of the people we're in that foxhole with. And if there's one message I'd like to really stress on this podcast, that's it. Yeah, well, thank you for that. And I, I agree 100%. And there's, there's so many people that have told similar stories. And the first point, the first step for me is to let people know they're not alone. They're not crazy. And I, I haven't really met a firefighter that's telling the truth who said anything other than, I'm always tired. I snap at my wife. You know, I mean, and in varying degrees, some people are aware of it. They found great coping mechanisms or, you know, positive outlets. I guess is a better way of saying it. But that you've got these amazing men and women who I adore, the ones that take the job seriously. And I use this analogy a lot. Look at the grinder. First day orientation, mentally fit. Uh, physically fit, you know, fired up, and then look 10 years, 15 years into the job. A lot of these people now are not the same physically, mentally, emotionally. 
And I think that what's sad is we, instead of creating an environment for these first responders to thrive in, we have allowed history to dictate, for example, shifts where we people don't know. And my, my whole thing is to educate, but we've created an environment that's actually destroying them. And, I, and I'm going to ask you in a moment about your work week, but the average work week in the U.S. is about 56 hours. I think this 24-hour shift is what it needs to be for the fire service specifically if you've got a firehouse and a place to lay down for a bit. But 56-hour weeks, two full work days a week, then the average civilian, we're told, oh, you only work you know, 10 days a, a month. No, you put it into eight-hour days, we work 30 days a month. <laughs> so, you know, there is no day off if you look at it in an eight hour, hour day. Now, we're not taking the violin out. We signed, you know, we, we know what we're doing. We, we agreed to be away from our family. But I think that the 2472, the 42 hour work week that I know a lot of the Northeast does is the first step. I've, I've spoke to a federal fireman the other day and he works 2424. That's a 70, I think it was 72 hour work week insanity absolute insanity so these people are wondering why they're going through these and the first thing is like you said the sleep you need sleep to function it's killing us our people chronically and it's also causing in my opinion probably the root of some of the line of duty deaths too the missed searches the roof falls the intersection wrecks because we can't even function when we're sleep deprived yeah very well may be very well may be you know now i i retired a little over a year ago. Um, I don't know if, if we even talked about that, but I, what I do right now is, is you know, full-time teaching. You know, I'm traveling, I'm teaching, I'm working with fire departments uh, all the time, doing about 50 seminars or workshops a year, um, you know, or more when I'm working for three or more days. When it comes to my work week, it's, it's uh, significantly better than it was because uh, a year and a half ago, what I was doing was, uh, you know, I worked at 2472, but sometimes I'd, I'd get out of work. I would go jump on a plane. I'd fly somewhere like Ohio, as an example. I'd get off that plane, um, uh, speak the next day, a six hour seminar, jump back on a plane at night. And then I'd end up getting home probably about maybe one or two o'clock in the morning and get a couple hours of sleep. Then I have to wake up and, and guess what? Now I'm, I'm heading back to my next shift if I'm working. Well, you know, and it was it was a real rough go uh, for a while. I mean, and there was a time when I sat here and I thought, well, I'm not sure. I, well, I know for a fact I can't continue doing both, you know. And so now that I'm that I'm speaking full time, uh, my schedule is a lot better. I wake up, I come to my office in a home, I write, uh, I return some emails. I, I take my time uh, getting through this process of of just running my business. And then I go out and I speak, uh, like for example, this, uh, Friday, I'm flying out to Cape Cod, Massachusetts, doing a seminar on Saturday, flying back that night. And so my schedule is much, almost a little, a lot like when it was when I was working full time before I even started teaching where you'd be gone, you know, for a day and a half or so. And then you're back home for the next few days. It's a lot like that again. When I was working, I don't know that I ever in, in more than 26 years, when I was working in the fire service, I don't know that I ever got a full night's sleep when I was there. And by the way, I never complained about it. Um, it wasn't something I felt, oh, you know, woe is me. And like you said, pull out the violin. That, that's the job. It, it was like, it, it was no big deal. But what I failed to really understand was the effect that it could be having on my mind and body, you know, because I just wasn't educated on that. And that's why, you know, I appreciate, I think the, the, the podcast format in general, 
I appreciate because when you when you can bring on a guest that has an expertise in a certain area and you can spend an hour with that person and have, listen to these types of conversations and you learn something you didn't know and but you have to do something with the knowledge you learn you know in in too many people me in the past I was one of them I'd learn something I think oh that's interesting but wouldn't take action on it but as I got older I learned to say well now now that I know this you know I used to have this saying to know and not to do is not to know now that I know what to do, if I don't do it, it's my fault if I'm not getting the results that I want. I have to take the action to make the better end result. And that's with anything. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. And what you've hit on, you know, is two two areas. And I try and be very fair. There's the ownership. There's the firefighter. Don't, you know, we, we, we can't do this profession with these shifts and then go to pull a night shift in the ER the next day. I mean, you you know, you're adding to that. But what also just blows my mind is there you are in the Northeast doing 42-hour work weeks for 24-72, which I think as a firefighter, that's that's a reasonable shift. You're asking to stay up for 24 hours and you're giving them the time to recover. And so many of the sleep experts that I've had on here have said, that seems like a good structure. But then you look at the the rest of the US with the 56-hour work week, the 24-48, that's even if those men and women are allowed to go home because the mandatories are so rife in a lot of these departments as well. And my goal with this podcast is to get people educated. I'm not blaming anyone because I didn't even know about sleep deprivation until about five years ago. And I've been in the wellness you know, environment in, in college and as a trainer and an athlete my whole life. But now is to educate people and then get our men and women pissed off to the point where they demand change. And we were talking about unions earlier. Rather than chasing a 50-cent raise, maybe say, how come New Jersey has been doing it 24-72? But when we bring it up, you're asking, you're looking at it like it's a unicorn fighting rainbows. No. I was surprised when I would travel and find out everybody's not 24-72. You know, when people tell me they're working 48 straight hours, I'm thinking, wow. I mean... How, how does that affect you? I mean, how do you get off duty and have any sort of of quality life, at least for the first 24 hours when you're off duty? And, and you know, um, obviously taking into consideration what type of department. Some people work for very, very, very slow departments, and I totally get that. But still, I mean, on a personal level, I wouldn't not want to be away from my family for 24 straight hours regularly. I just wouldn't. You know, so that that's a, a more of an emotional toll uh, you know, on me than, than probably anything else. But, um, but I understand, you know, it's no matter how you cut it, I believe that we, this absolutely is the greatest job on earth. You know, it's a flawed job. Um, the only thing that can take a, a great job and make it not a great job is, is people that, that treat people unfairly or make rules that, take the um the great part of the job away so you know when you have your mission where you just talked about some of the things you're passionate about what i'm passionate about is to help and bring awareness to better ways to lead teams because i think that you know i'm a guy who's an overthinker so if if i'm in a situation where and many people are but if i'm in a situation where um things are not good at work i bring it home with me you know and it and it affects my home life. And many times when I say if things aren't good at work, what do I mean things aren't good at work? Well, it means maybe I have, uh, you know, somebody I work with, a boss that's treating me 
unfairly and holding me to a different standard than other people or wants to see me fail in certain areas. There's people out there that want to see people fail. There's people out there that 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 don't want to see a team achieve success unless it's unless it's mm. their name is the one that carries that success. You know, and you know, I understand that that exists. I'm a guy that never wanted to be the uh, the head of the organization in a way where I said, hey, I want all the praise to come to me. Not at all. Let me put it to you this way. Anytime we put out a fire as an as an incident commander and deputy chief, I was outside. I was outside. I wasn't on the hose line. I wasn't the one making a rescue. I wasn't the one. I, I served. I served in those positions. I did all those things. Don't get me wrong. But as an incident commander and a deputy chief, I was outside the building directing people to do things inside the building. If they succeeded, it's because they took the right actions inside the building and the credit belongs to them. If we failed, hey, you know what? Maybe I, I set up the wrong game plan and and put them in the wrong position and had a part to do in that. But I'll tell you right now, um, the praise for me always went to the people that were doing the grunt work, so to speak, that were in there stretching the lines, making the rescues, doing the job. And I wish everybody looked at it that way. You know, praise people for when they do things right. Give the credit where credit's due. Make people feel good about about their part on a team. And the team becomes stronger. When you want the credit all for yourself, teams fail when one person wants to take all the credit. History has proven that. But sometimes we work in organizations where people, leader, people, people that are in leadership positions in organizations may not uh, understand that yet. Or choose not to and that's one of the things that i try to bring awareness to yeah and just going back to what we were saying before that as well there when you start talking about the working environment you know that there's that little niggling voice of well you know if you can't handle it go work somewhere else and people have got to also be aware like there are conditions that you can put in that are going to make you a better firefighter they're going to put you at home more a better father a better husband you know so don't confuse wanting to maybe have the same shift schedule as New Jersey as weakness and not being passionate about a firefighter. You know, you want to create an environment where you are the best version of yourself at work and at home. And if the current one that you're in isn't providing that, then pick up the torches and the flat, the, uh, the pitchforks and, and start, you know, raising your voice. And like you said, there's a problem you want to fix. Fix that. Fix an environment where you don't ever wake up with your family one day in three that over 10 20 30 years <laughs> that's a lot of missed days like you said so you know i think that's that's what i really want to get people to understand is there's a difference between being a, a great medic a great firefighter a great officer and owning some of the areas that that you can see are detrimental to not only your health but your performance as well yeah uh, yes I agree with you. Hey, you know what? Listen, and, and this is it. It's time. It's time to step up and make the change that you feel you need to see within your organization. It's time to, to start uh, setting the bar higher, setting the standard higher. It's time to start making a change we need to uh, see to make it a better working environment. And we can sit back and we can complain. And I'm a big, a big supporter of having discussions, but I'm a much bigger supporter of taking actions and saying, all right, what do we need to do right now to make it better? So hopefully people listening to this, uh, you know, are looking at things that they want to change. And you may have to do, listen, you and I, James, we may, we could work together and see things completely different. And you may have, uh, 
carry the torch for wanting to make some sort of change in organization and I may carry a torch for a different change. It doesn't mean we can't support each other and help each other achieve our goals if we both believe in each other's um, uh, stance. And I, and you know, it's a situation where it all starts with a discussion, but it has to move into action. Action is leadership. Well, I couldn't agree more. I think that's a great place to start transitioning to some closing questions. So firstly, one of the solutions is obviously you have books out there about leadership and you also present as well. I got to see a very abbreviated version of one of your presentations. Um, so tell me about the books and, you know, where people can find those and reach out to you to talk as well. Yeah, well, you know what? I have uh, seven published books uh, currently working on working on another one. But, um, yeah, I have several different types of books. I mean, I'll just give you an example of some of them. Step Up and Lead is the one that um, I think has found the most traction within this industry because it's it's talking about um, us being able to take ownership of ourselves. I have a, a saying in there that I learned from a friend, a leader one can become a leader of many, but if you can't lead one, you'll never lead any. So it's about us leading ourselves and then leading our team. A lot of organizations use it on their promotional list. But a lot of times people will say, what book of yours should I read if I could read any? And I would say, start with Step Up and Lead. If you're not a firefighter, I would say, start with It's Time to Step Up. It's Time to Step Up is, is Step Up and Lead, for people outside our industry. If you have one, you don't need the other book. But if you're not a firefighter, it's time to step up. Um, we'll give you that value, but talk to you as if you were a youth coach or in mm. private industry or other industries other than fire service. I also have Step Up Your Teamwork. I have Fire Ground Operational Guide. It's Common Valor, which is true stories from America's Bravest. The first volume is about New Jersey. And uh, Practice Scenarios, several other books. But to find my work, and to find out even about my seminars, just go to my website, which is my name, Frank Viscuso, V-I-S-C-U-S-O.com. And go to frankviscuso.com. There's a summary of my books. There's a summary of my seminars. Uh, there's a way to contact me. Um, if anybody even wanted to discuss content on this podcast, send me an email. You know, I, I'm always open to, to having a conversation and, and help people achieve a greater level of success in some area of their life. If I can help you, I'd like to help you, you know, but as far as my seminars go, um, they're all over the place. I mean, I'll, I just got back from Montgomery, Alabama and Kentucky. I'm going out to Cape Cod, Massachusetts uh, in December. I'll be in Mason, Ohio and Springfield, Ohio on the 5th and 6th. Then Edie County, New Mexico on the 14th, Prince George's County, Maryland on December. And then the next year starts and there's 50 seminars on the calendar all over the U.S. and some in Europe, um, you know, so I'm constantly traveling, working with uh, members of our military, working with uh, some corporations, working in the healthcare industry and working with firefighters. Excellent. All right. Are you going to be back in, um, excuse me, are you going to be back in Florida next year at some point? You know, I think I may be. I think I have something in Florida. Um, I, I'd have to review my schedule and let you know. Um, uh, I know I'm going to be in Pensacola Beach in May. Uh, the 12th, 13th, and 14th, uh, somewhere in that time frame, I'm going to be speaking out there. And I do know in January of 2021, I'm going to be in um, Orlando at the Orlando Fire Conference. Brilliant. But, uh, I may have another one mixed up in there somewhere. Okay. Well, let me know. The first of the closing questions that I ask, is there someone else's book that you love to recommend? It can be about what we've discussed today or something completely different. Yeah. You know, I, I read after I wrote Step Up and Lead, somebody said, have you ever read It's Your Ship? 
And I said, no, I haven't. And they told me about uh, It's Your Ship by Michael Abrashoff. I don't know if I pronounced his last name properly. But um, when I read that book, I thought, yeah, I, I wish I read this book 10 years ago. Uh, I think a lot of what he shares is in line with with some of the things I shared in Step Up and Lead. Um, but basically, he just talked about implementing the ideas of the people who you're asking to do the task to. So, example, if I'm uh, if I'm if I want to design a new apparatus for my station, it'd be crazy for me not to get the advice or the input from the people that are going to actually be using the apparatus. You know, as an example, and that's one of the things he talks very thoroughly about in that book is anytime they need to make change to take what was arguably by standards uh, point of view, the worst ship in a Navy and turned it into the best ship in a Navy. Uh, he implemented the ideas of the people that had to perform the tasks to make it the best ship in the Navy. And then that's how they were able to turn it around. So it's your ship, I think, is a, is a really solid leadership book that I would recommend to people. Brilliant. Yeah, I think everyone can relate to that exact uh, scenario that you gave, too. We've all been on that rig where someone else designed it. <laughs> um, yeah, <no> doubt. <laughs> all right. Same question. A movie and or a documentary that you love? Oh, you, you know, I, I am such a huge movie buff. Uh, it's incredible. And um, I, I would say that the series... Um, and I'm, right now, because I didn't expect this question, I actually drawn a blank on it. But uh, the series about um, from World War Two, Band of Brothers. About, thank you so much. I'm so sorry that I struggled with it, but Band of Brothers. No problem. Is is I, I just haven't watched it in a while. But when I watch Band of Brothers, I think there's so many great leadership lessons in there, and you know, know that it's that it's based on a true story. And I'd actually read the books to the book to band of brothers. I thought was fantastic. Um, I would recommend that. Um, I think that, uh, what I like the most about movies is every now and then you just get that scene from a movie that I think is powerful. Um, you know, and I'm thinking about, um, you know, for example, a scene from, from um saving private ryan you know when they come across the sniper and they're trying to convince um tom hanks character to go around it and just ignore it and he's saying so you know we're supposed to leave uh this so the next uh, crew that comes here gets ambushed and basically he gives them his own speech his own version of we found a problem we're going to solve the problem you know i that, by the way that's why i like um military based movies so much and sports based movies for the same reason because there's always that one lesson you know where, where you can go to and take away from it and say that you know that was great like um you know they they got that uh that other movie about the very segregated football team uh about the titans remember yeah. that movie remember the titans remember the titans and you got this scene where Denzel Washington is trying to lead a very divisive group of people. You know, it's, it's, it's a very segregated time, a very segregated community. And you have um, Denzel Washington come in as the new coach. And people are very unhappy with that. But at one point, he gets so fed up with it, he says to these two different groups, I want each one of you to get to know each one of them and each one of you to get to know each one of them and come back to me when you learn about each other. And there's a scene where the 
captain of the team, who's a white player, goes up to one of the best players on the team and basically tells him, you're not doing your job. And in this conversation, the other player says, you know, you're not doing your job either. And they have this, this conversation that he says, you know, why won't you tell your friends to block for, for my buddy? And, and during this conversation, what I love is at the end of it, the, the captain says, man, that's the worst attitude I ever he- heard because the guy said, look, I'm out for myself at this point. I'm not about the team because there is no team. And he says, that's the worst attitude I ever heard. He goes, well, attitude reflects leadership, captain. And I think that's powerful. That's powerful. How can we expect a high performance from people if we're coming to work, not performing high and setting the example for them? So, you know, when you talk about a movie, and I'm sorry for the extremely long answer, but I am such a huge fan of movies that I just like these these segments that you can take from a movie and these lessons. And you could take that and and learn from it and apply that to your organization. Yeah, that's such an amazing film. And, you know, the the result was incredible when they finally were led and got past their superficial biases. I mean, what an incredible team they became. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So then the next question, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responder military and civilians that listen to it? Well, I think you're doing a real good job of bringing in all the right people quite honestly, because when I look at the guests you're bringing in, uh, I find it very impressive. When you and I spoke, I told you about a buddy of mine who's got no connection with military first responders or anything else. But um, on the beach about three years ago, I met a young man by the name of Nick Santanastasso. And Nick was born with hand heart syndrome. He had has no legs and one arm and one finger on his one arm. And from the moment I met him, and watched him grow and had many conversations with him, including the time that where he called me up one day and said, you know, he want he wants to be a motivational speaker. He's now uh, spending a lot of time with Tony Robbins, speaking with him and going around the world, speaking to groups of 10, 15, 20,000 people at a time, all in less than two years. Uh, I've watched what he's accomplished, but it's not because of any other reason except the type of person he is. Nick is a guy who has physical limitations but is superior in his mental ability to think and overcome and solve problems. And one of the things I love about Nick is that um, when he was born, his family chose not to, uh, not to change anything in the house to make it life easy for him. They basically told him, if you're going to be successful in life, you need to adapt to the world because the world will not adapt to you. And so he spent his life doing that. And the things he's accomplished, which I'll let him share with you on a podcast, are amazing. And the way he inspires people is incredible. If you have a chance to get him on and I'll give you his number, I would highly and strongly suggest you bring Nick Santanastasso on. And you can find him easily on social media also. Well, I've been following him for years. I know exactly who he is. I've watched him do the workouts with the plate where he drives his one arm through it and then a guy holds the other shoulder down. And yeah, and then he reminds me a lot of... um, of Kyle that I had on, who uh, was the same, born with a congenital amputee, no arms, no legs, and the uh, same exact thing. His parents were like, we're not changing anything. So it's interesting how those two stories parallel. But um, yeah, And I don't know if they even know each other. Um, you know, Nick would be able to answer that. But but um, it was it's a very, Nick's very unique for me personally. 
because the day that I met him, um, I was with my two boys and I remember telling him because they were young, I think five and six at the time. I said, listen, there's a boy sitting up there with our friends that has, I could tell from a distance he had no legs and I didn't realize he only had one arm at the time. But I basically said to my boys, I said, remember what I told you about people that are different at school? You know, because we talked one time about a kid that was in a wheelchair and another kid that um, had was had a deformity. And I said, look, they may look different on the outside, but they're the same on the inside. They have the same feelings. They want to be accepted. They want to be loved. They want to be treated fairly. They want to be included. I said, when you're over there with this boy, know that inside he's just like you. And I was so impressed with how Nick just makes people fall in love with him that I thought, you know, I, sh- I didn't have to tell my kids anything that this guy would have immediately made them, my kids feel like he's not different, you know? And so I've watched him grow and, and, uh, and he, what's, what's unique about people like Kyle and, and about Nick is because you could see a challenge that they've had to overcome. But what I've explained to Nick a long time ago is I have challenges that I've had to overcome too. So have you, James, and so has everybody that listens to this podcast. The difference is people can't always see our challenges. So I, I told them, when you're in front of a room talking to them and trying to inspire people, understand that they all have disabilities, but some of them are internal. And uh, and he understands that. So I think he'd be a really good uh, positive influence to your listeners. Yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. We'll definitely make that happen. So thank you so much for that. And then also... Um uh, Frankie as well. I'd love to reach out to him. Yeah, Frankie Edgar. I mean, uh, again, like a close personal friend who um, one of the best UFC fighters on the planet. Um, more time fighting in the octagon than any other human that walked the planet. And uh, guaranteed Hall of Famer, still fighting after 14 years, ranked, I think, number four in the world in his weight class. But honestly, James, one of the most humble human beings I have ever met in my life. A guy who walked around as a world champion, who quite honestly, if you, if your car broke down and he's driving by you, he pulls over to the side of the road to get out to see what he can do to help you, a complete stranger. He's that guy. And it's, and it's refreshing to see a guy who has not let uh, success, especially in the industry, you know about martial arts because you, with your training, you understand it better than a lot of people. But martial arts is not, hey, I can kick anybody's butt on the planet. So I'm going to go around and flex my muscles. It's more about humility. I asked him one time why so many people who fight at such a high level at him tend to be so humble because I know a lot of these guys from my neighborhood. Um, And he said, well, he goes, understand, it's easy to be humble when you've got beaten in front of millions of people. He says, but oftentimes at practice, we'll get beat by our training partners. So when you get caught in a in a rear naked choke by a guy that is not even fighting in the UFC, you realize you could be humbled at any moment. And I thought, well, there's a lot of power to that. Yeah, absolutely. And I can say I can attest completely that the the successful MMA martial artists that I've had on the show, and the same with the uh, the members of the military. It's the same thing. None of them are flexing, posturing. There, so many of them are out there giving back, and and you know that's why. And I've always admired Frankie. This isn't blowing smoke up your asses because you know him. I, you could tell he's a freaking warrior. But that's what's so crazy. Then, if you look in the mirror and you do have that ego in the fire service, in law enforcement, in in general as a person, ask yourself why. 
because the toughest people on the planet don't. So what is it right. that you think makes you so special? Right, right. Humility is such a powerful trait and more people need it. And how more when he asks what, how uh, he was given a question uh, one time about how he feels about his success since his days in the military, because he's got the book, the movies, he's been asked to go speak throughout the country and how he feels about his success. Uh, I'll never forget his response. So powerful. He turned to the reporter and he said, humility. And he went on to say how he didn't consider it success because what he's written about, what they made a movie about and what he speaks about involved the loss of soldiers and what he was trying to do was honor them by sharing their stories and to be able to achieve a certain level of notoriety and success off of that was a, a very humbling thing. And he never wanted to forget why he was doing it. And, uh, you know, I think that's a wonderful statement from a man who's true hero for America. Absolutely. All right. Well, then I got one more question and then uh, we'll let you go. When you are not traveling and teaching now, and obviously before when you weren't fighting fire or leading firefighters, what do you do to decompress? It's all about the family, everything. It's all about my family, just spending time with my family. Uh, my boys play baseball. I coach uh, some of their teams. Uh, uh, I love being on the baseball diamond. Um, it's a place that, you know, when I was younger and I used to go to the gym a lot, it was a place that I would be able to decompress and, uh, and I find that same value with being there with them because, you know, when I have all these young little uh, uh, 9, 10, 11, and 12-year-old uh, baseball players and I have an opportunity to teach them something that can not just help them be successful on a baseball diamond but help them be successful off of it and in life, uh, it's, it's, I love it. I love that moment. I love being able to, to try to prepare people for success and for challenges. And, and baseball to me symbolizes like you're going to fail more than you succeed. You know, so when a kid struggles with his at bat and walks off, you know, upset on the verge of crime because he struck out, it's a great time to remind him you're supposed to strike out more than you hit the ball. Every great greatest baseball players that ever lived, you know, have failed way more than they succeeded at the plate. And that's symbolic of life. Sometimes it's about not, giving up it's about going back up and swinging the bat the next time and believing the next time you can make a difference and shaking it off and saying what else can i do to contribute for my team right now and that i love that i love being in that situation and so uh that, that's probably one of the most uh my most favorite places to be Brilliant. Well, I just want to say, Frank, thank you so much. It's been well over two hours, this conversation. I never know how long these are going to be. I just tell my family I should be done by tomorrow. So, <laughs> um, hey, Listen, uh, let me just end with this. You, you're doing a great job. You know, you really are. You, you, like I mentioned, you're bringing on some great guests. The content's fantastic. Uh, I'm, I'm proud of you for what you're doing. Uh, um, I encourage you to keep going. Uh, and my, you and I had a conversation about certain people. Um, that uh, I'm sure I can help you get as a guest on your podcast. But uh, I hope you bring them on. But regardless, I hope you just keep doing what you're doing because you're making a difference. Well, thank you. And then the same to you. You know, I mean, that's what I love about this project is this. I, I get asked sometimes, oh, do you ever feel like you're going to run out of guests? I'm like, no, there's just not enough days in the week to to get these people on. And, you know, what you're doing, the impact you had when 
you spoke to Armando's family in that presentation and how you did make it personal to them and, you know, watching them, you know, upset, but you could tell the pride in the, the kids had in their dad as well. Um, you know, it, that we need people like you. And, and I, I thank you for what you're doing. I can't wait one day to actually see your full presentation in person. I, I really appreciate that. And thank you again. Thank you for the opportunity to bring me on to your podcast. 